Hi everyone. This is Criterion Channel Surfing and I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Just a quick note before we begin today's show. The following episode was originally recorded in mid-June and intended to go out shortly thereafter, but as with most of our episodes since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, long hours working from home have limited the time, energy, and bandwidth needed to edit in my off hours, so this is significantly later than normal. Because the episode was so late, I decided to make it one large mega episode instead of breaking it up into three shorter ones and releasing them over the next few days. So you'll be getting a bonus-sized episode here. There are a few bits of news that have lost their timeliness. The Black Lives collection that Criterion Channel released on their service for free during the month of June is no longer free, and the expiring titles for July that we recommended are no longer on the service. However, I did really enjoy the conversations that my guest Brad McDermott and I had on these subjects, and hopefully you'll still get something from these conversations and recommendations. I'll be recording segments for our July episode soon, and with any luck, I'll be able to get those out a little faster this month. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And now, here's the show. You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection streaming video service, the Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Filmmaker Brad McDermott, frequent guest of the Criterion Now and Criterion Reflections podcasts, joins me today to talk about films noir that are part of Criterion Channel's permanent streaming library. We'll also be discussing June's new releases and expiring titles. Michael Hutchins stopped by to talk about Criterion films on HBO Max, and Becky DeAnna joins me for a conversation about entry points to the films of Ingmar Bergman. Stay with us as we start surfing the Criterion Channel. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. My guest today is Brad McDermott, filmmaker and frequent guest on the Criterion Now and Criterion Reflections podcasts. Brad, thank you so much for coming on the show and joining me for a regular episode. You were on last month for the the mega Michael Hutchins uh episode where the two of you were on to just do a very informal conversation about the new and expiring titles. So I'm really happy to have you on as a guest for the the full three episodes that we're going to dive into today. So thanks for joining me today. Oh, no problem. Thanks so much for, for having me. It was, I had a great time last time with the, the sort of grab bag episode. So it's kind of nice to have a, a, a good, like proper long one. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun today. For listeners who were just barely introduced to you last time, why don't you spend a little bit of time talking about yourself? I know that uh, they may have uh, met you a little bit on Criterion Now or Criterion Reflections, but uh, you're up in Canada and I know you do work with film and uh, just tell a little bit about uh, your work as a filmmaker and in the film industry. What is it that you do? Uh, sure. Well, um, I'm I based out of Toronto. Um, so me and my uh, partner Fred, we are a production company um, called TikTok Pictures, 
and uh, between the two of us, we've made um, a number of like LGBT-related shorts and kind of music videos and sort of like the overlap between those two. So we've been in uh, a number of um, LGBT film festivals all over, U- well, U.S. primarily, but a few in Europe and um, some as well up here in Canada. So it's been it's just been a great experience um, so far, and we're just sort of still plugging, you know, away at our production company. We are trying to uh, move into features. So uh, mm. we've just written partly, I mean, this has been sort of a, a long process too, but during the time of the, you know, lockdown, uh, we have been finessing our first script, which is a horror feature. Um, mm. So we're sort of in 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 process of of getting that done. So um, yeah, and besides that, I do visual art. I'm a painter, and I've shown in um, a few galleries here in the city. Um, and uh, most of my Instagram stuff is actually connected to my painting as well. But yeah, that's I guess that's me um, in a nutshell. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. And, you know, we talked a little bit about your uh, your thoughts on the channel. We talked a little bit about the fact that up in Canada, you get a slightly different selection, uh, mainly based on Canadian uh, availability. So we've talked about some of that. But as we were planning the show, you uh, mentioned that uh, you really wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the artist Christo. Uh, he's featured in a number of documentaries that are now a part of the permanent streaming library on the Criterion channel. And uh, he recently just passed away. And uh, I just would love to hear more about Christo, your connection to his art and uh, your thoughts about him and his passing. I don't have any sort of uh, personal connection to his art, unfortunately, I've never been able to see or sort of experience anything, you know, firsthand that he did. Because um, a lot of his stuff is temporary, right? He mm. when he when he wrapped the Point Neuf or when he wrapped the Reichstag and and wrapped um, islands that, uh, off the the Florida Keys, um, those are all temporary installations, and then then they would be taken down. So. I just learned about him ever since high school in art class and have just always been fascinated with the enormity of his projects. And mm. that's kind of something that makes him stand out, at least at least sort of um, the beginning. I mean, I'm sure he's had many people sort of been, been influenced by him and his wife. Um, but the two of them would, like I said, do these enormous installations where they would wrap things often with, giant pieces of fabric and that sort of idea that art could not just be inside uh like a pick like a frame or or a sculpture we're so used to art being something that's small small scale um even you know the big pieces of art that we think like michelangelo's david or something where it's a giant sculpture it's like that's still small compared to this kind of art this kind of Mm. art we're used to just being seen on sort of uh, like architecture, like something that serves a function other than just being um, an aesthetic, like a visual for you to react to. And so that's sort of what made um, their their work sort of stand apart is that there were these enormous enterprises of like, uh, you know, tens of thousands of construction workers to do all of this, mm. um, which is not something that sort of 
historically art has been has been doing. So I just wanted to because we recently lost Christo. Um, his wife had passed away uh, several years before, but I just wanted to sort of showcase that the Maisel's brothers, who um, I'm sure all of your listeners know from yeah. Gimme Shelter, Grey Garden, Salesman, just like amazing, amazing filmmakers, followed Christo and his wife uh, for several of their pieces. And they made several uh, documentaries. I think there are five of them. I cannot remember. Yeah, there's a good chunk of them, right? Yeah. And they all vary different lengths. Some are, are like an hour and a half. Some are just a half an hour. But they're all great. And I saw them when I was in college. And they they deserve a spy number. They deserve a release <laughs> if mm. Criterion's listening. And I, so if you're curious about who Christo was, they're just a great place to watch. And you'll know everything you need to know about his legacy and, and what, he, what him and his wife did just by watching them. So I highly recommend them. That's great. That's great. My first uh, experience with these films was honestly just seeing that they had been added to the channel. I haven't had a chance to catch them yet. I didn't know much about uh, Christo and his work, and so I'm really eager to explore more of uh, this. And your description of it makes me even more excited. So this sounds really, really exciting. Delve into it. I think the last big installation was the gates um in mm. in central park so if a lot of the listeners out there were remember the gates because that's sort of mm. the one that i feel like most people of us could get to because <laughs> it was up for a while if they remember those orange those orange rail uh gates going through central park that was christo so just as a as a re- recent reference that's great also i think that it's uh I really want to highlight, this just came up uh, really recently in the midst of the the protests uh, against police brutality that have come up uh, in the wake of the police murder of George Floyd. Uh, Criterion and Janus Films have uh, announced uh, some really neat initiatives uh, to uh, help support uh, black filmmakers. And uh, one of the pieces of this that they're doing right now is they have removed the paywall from the films on the Criterion channel uh, that are by black filmmakers. And then they've also um, put uh, back on the channel films by people like Charles Burnett. So we get the Kalika Law films, the Cheryl Dunn films, the Pioneers of African American Cinema bundle. Uh, this is a, a really incredible collection of films that uh, they have been working at um, curating over the last several years since the beginning of the Criterion Channel. And they're making these films available for free as uh, a way to showcase the incredible work by black filmmakers. And they're also making available some really incredible portraits of black artists like Shirley Clark's Jason Portrait of an Artist and a few others. So it's a really neat part of their initiative to also try to explore their own biases 
this was uh, part of a charge that Barry Jenkins issued them uh, oh, really? back during uh, the days of Filmstruck mm. when they did his adventures in movie going. He actually challenged uh, them as a company in their adventures in movie going. He said, you have this really incredible platform here and you have this ability to break open the canon or what is considered to be the canon of film. And uh, you have the, the ability to highlight women. You have the ability to highlight black filmmakers and filmmakers of color and uh, he really encouraged the team at Criterion to begin doing that more and we've been seeing that effort over the last I would say five years or more absolutely in in both the uh, channel and the the collection as well exactly mm-hmm. exactly and so uh, it's neat that this isn't just a new thing this isn't just something that they ha- are doing in the last couple of weeks but that this is uh, something that they have really been working on for a long time and uh, removing the paywall is a really um, neat way to make this accessible for everyone it's a really neat uh, way to just explore the world from some different viewpoints than the straight white men that uh, so often dominate uh, cinema. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, it is, right? I mean, you know, I know that for myself, you know, I grew up fairly conservative mm-hmm. and uh, it was cinema that really helped broaden my horizons. And uh, I think that every every film that I watch, I know, helps give me a slightly different perspective and helps give me a different window onto the world. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I, we'll talk about a few of them, I think, as we go uh, through this today. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, Brad and I are going to be right back to talk about the Criterion Channel's new and expiring titles for the month of June. But first, I'm going to check in with Michael Hutchins, and we're going to be talking about Criterion titles that are now available on HBO Max. So stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel surfing, make sure to check out The Robert Taylor Odyssey a blog written by Robert Taylor. Robert Taylor takes you along for a journey into his cinematic obsessions, from the Criterion Collection in Film Noir to the films of Akira Kurosawa and the American Film Institute's Top 100. Find out more at theroberttaylorodyssey.wordpress.com. I'm here with Michael Hutchins, one of our regular contributors to Criterion Channel Surfing, as well as a frequent contributor to most of the Facebook groups that are dedicated to the Criterion Collection. He's joining me today to talk about the Criterion titles that are now on HBO Max. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, great to be here. How are you doing, Josh? I am I am well. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing I'm doing well too. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Well, you know, HBO Max launched just a few weeks ago and I know that there has been some talk within the Criterion communities about 
you know, the, the fact that there are a number of Criterion titles uh, that have made their way to this new service. And uh, I just thought it would probably be a good point of discussion for us. And uh, I thought, who better to talk to about this than you as our resident statistician <laughs> and uh, resident historian for all things Criterion and streaming. And, you know, uh, it's been a while since... Filmstruck ended, and I, I know that there was some sort of a deal at some point um, at the end of Filmstruck when uh, Warner Media ended Filmstruck and the Criterion Channel originally. I know that there was a deal for Criterion content to make their way over. So, so this was really not all that unexpected, correct? Oh, no, it wasn't at all. In fact, I think in the joint press release, whenever uh, Filmstruck was stopped, they actually mentioned both Warner Media and Criterion that their partnership would continue and there would be licensing between each of them. But you know, it's my understanding, and this is all speculative, but I'm I'm thinking they're just finishing up the contract that they had to, with each other when they created Filmstruck. Yeah. Yeah, and we're not expecting that the Criterion titles will be on there indefinitely, correct? I don't think so. If we if we go by history, we know that Criterion has made deals with different companies. Uh, for instance, their deal with Hulu lasted five years, and then they signed up for a few more months until they could get back on streaming with Filmstruck. So let's say the contract with Warner or with TCM at the time Let's say it was a five-year deal, which means from November of 2016 that that contract would have ran out, you know, in the fall of 2021. At the most, what I'm guessing now is that these Criterion titles may be on HBO Max until November of 2021. But you never know. They could also re-up their deal. Maybe somewhere along the line, Warner will say, well, we're getting some subscribers that would not otherwise have come, so we can you know, try to renegotiate this deal. Yeah. And I imagine it doesn't hurt Criterion too much to have a little extra revenue coming in uh, from uh, this streaming deal that they get. Oh, sure. I agree. I, I can't see it hurting Criterion at all. I'm hearing some concern about how it may cut into the Criterion channel subscribers, but I just, I can't see that. I really, I really think that uh, there's such different markets that one has barely any effect at all on the other one. Yeah, well, let's let's talk a little bit about the titles that are on HBO Max. So, uh, when we look at the the Janus Library titles that are in the Criterion Collection uh, and that have uh, made their way over to HBO Max, what what are we looking at numbers wise there? Out of the almost fifteen hundred Janus titles uh, that are streaming. We only have 314 that will be streaming on HBO Max. So, you know, less than uh, 20%, let's say. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it actually reminds me a little bit of the the way that the Filmstruck Criterion Channel exactly. pairing happened, right? Where if you if you paid a little extra, you got access to all of those titles. But if you only had access to Filmstruck, you only got a smaller chunk of the Criterion titles available to you, right? 
Yes, and, I, and that's why I'm thinking this is a continuation of that deal because I'm looking at some of the titles and these were some of the some of the films, uh, the Criterion films that played on the TCM side of Filmstruck. So yeah. that's that's what I'm thinking that somehow they sat down and he decided certain films was going to be a, have more of an appeal than others. So uh, Warner Brothers kind of carved out a little little section there of films that they think could have attracted a broader audience. And those yeah. are the films that are now, I believe, on HBO Max. Yeah, yeah. When uh, you look at the non-Janus Criterion titles that have made their way to HBO Max, uh, what are we looking at there numbers-wise? Uh, only about 37 from my count. And many of these are Warner Brother titles anyway. You know, mm. films like Hedwig and the Angry Inch, The Philadelphia Story, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Mildred Pierce, uh, now Voyager. Those would have been on a Warner streaming service regardless. Okay. And so, in fact, what you have is Criterion licensing those films for physical release. And then, of course, the streaming rights, if they ever get them, would only be temporary to start with. So they're not, when the, I didn't consider those whenever I was given my totals for the Janus films themselves. Yeah. So, I mean, really, when you think about it, this deal probably has opened up some physical releases for Criterion that they might not have gotten otherwise, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, they now that uh, the Warner catalog is just su such a large catalog containing all of the MGM films, RKO, United Artists, uh, I'm thinking that just uh, a lot of films for Criterion to draw from. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, we talked a little bit about some of the concerns that people had about this eating into the the Criterion Channel subscriber base and maybe maybe making the Criterion Channel less viable as a as its own entity. Uh, what are some of the things that give you hope or that, that kind of dismiss those fears for you? Here's a good way of looking at it. Of those 300 and something films, only about a hundred of them are what we consider classic art house movies. I think Warner uh, in choosing these Janus licensed films also went into films that they think ha had more, a broad appeal to a more general mm. audience. Yeah. And so out of that films, almost 20% of them are what I personally considered cult or exploitation films. You know, mm. and, and if you actually look at Criterion as a whole, that percentage of cult and exploitation is nowhere near 20%. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it seems like Warner in choosing these titles are appealing to a broader audience. Uh, films like Equinox, House, um, The Blob, Carnival of Souls, uh, The Night of the Living Dead... All of the Godzilla films, but two, and uh, all of the Lone Wolf films and the Lady Snowblood films, you know, so so you can see that uh, there's almost a distinction between what they wanted and what they considered uh, more arty, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, and those were the ones I stay away with. And if and if you, uh, when we get a chance, I can give you a, a kind of a, an overview of the titles that they skipped, you know? So that gives, it'll give you a good idea, it'll make those Criterion fans feel more reassured when they hear the list of films that are not on HBO Max. Yeah. Um, well, why don't we talk about a, a little bit about what are some of the things that they, they did skip over? Okay. Uh, let's say, uh, let's start with, uh, let's say the six moral tales by Eric Romare. 
they got four of them, which is pretty good, you know, considering. But uh, of the Apu trilogy, they only got the first one, you know, Pacho Panchali. And uh, uh, of the Bergman films, they, they didn't get Smiles for Summer Night, which I thought was a very popular, you know, Bergman film. Mm. Uh, they did not get any film by Varda, Kiristami, Boonwell, Powell, or Pressburger. So uh, they missed films like Kurosawa's High and Low or Tarkovsky's Andrei Rublev and uh, Stalker. They've got two of Rossellini's trilogy, you know, war trilogy. They didn't. They didn't get Paisan. They didn't get uh, Jean Dillman by Chantal mm-hmm. Ackerman, or uh, La Jetée by Chris Marker, Playtime, uh, Jacques Tati's Playtime. But they did get, you know, Mon Uncle and uh, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday. Mm-hmm. Uh, they skipped a couple of Mizuguchi, Sensho the Bailiff, and uh, The Life of Oharu, and they got. Nothing by Kenoshita, Imamura, Teshigahara, Oshima, and Narase. It's almost like they only picked, uh, Cherry picked just the best uh, or the most popular uh, Japanese directors. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, that's just, just, just a, a little little highlight of, of what they didn't get, you know. Of course, they did get films like 400 Blows, uh, Bicycle Thieves, Tokyo Story, Breathless, Seven Samurai, and uh, The Seventh Seal, you know, but yeah and you know i think it's interesting that too when we think about the additional content that criterion is curating on the channel oh yes all of that uh, new content plus the supplements that we know that hbo max will not have you know so that's that's just the appeal to the to the cinephile so there's there's no way i can see a true cinephile choosing uh hbo max over the channel yeah yeah and i think that you know again i think that you know there are there are some things that people will like on hbo max and there will be some things that will be of benefit you know i think that the the turner classic movies library uh while it's limited there's some there's some great content there right but i i do think that uh what criterion is doing is carrying on that work that uh, they and TCM had started with Filmstruck and really kind of taken it to that next curatorial level. And uh, and I think that this is, you know, if you are really, really passionate about curation and really passionate about uh, film and about the stories that can be told through film, uh, you know, I, th- I just think there's no comparison, right? Oh, I totally agree. There's, there's no comparison. If you, what you loved about Filmstruck has now, you know, come to the Criterion channel, and I can't imagine those same things you loved about Filmstruck being anything close to what is on HBO Max. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any, any good words of um, consolation for people or any, any more words of assurance for uh, people who are worried and, and nervous about uh, the Criterion channel going away? At this moment, I can just uh, say what I've said, that, that I can't see that there's any way that the channel is going to be affected by this. But, you know, we'll find out in, at the end of no, uh, no, in November of 2021 whether or not this still continues. And, uh, again, it's just two different audiences. I, I can't see, you know, one actually uh, affecting the other. Yeah. There may yeah. be a tiny overlap there. If there's a Venn diagram, I would say it's very tiny overlap. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's great. And, you know, uh, as, as we have seen, uh, this month, uh, one of the great things that the criterion channel and the fact that they have the, the control over their own service that it allows them to do is to, uh, do things like highlight the, the films of African-American filmmakers and, uh, shine a spotlight on that and then remove the paywall and make those free for everyone. I mean, it, to me, uh, I just can't see them relinquishing this service, uh, anytime Mm -hmm. soon. Well, can you imagine a corporate entity like uh, AT&T actually doing something like that? Yeah. I mean, just just their independence speaks for itself and and what they can program and their choices and and decisions they can make like in one day. You know, that's that's how easily they can they're able to uh, uh, see their audience and see what you know, what they feel their audience wants or what their audience needs to see. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and and I I just think that it it shows their commitment and the things that they've been working on for a long time, and and how they have been trying to break open the canon, how they have been trying really hard to to elevate underrepresented voices, and uh, like you said when you rattled off the list of films that are on the the HBO Max platform. Uh, and the films that were left off, you know, it's it's very clearly HBO Max is choosing the more popular films. They're choosing the more established films. And Criterion Channel, while it has all of those films, it's also really pushing the envelope and really doing what it can to expand its own catalog. And I think that's uh, really exciting. Oh, and I agree with you. Yeah. Well, Michael, our conversations are always such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me, Josh. I wanted to point out that I have a list, both lists now uh, on Letterboxd, one of them uh, of the Janus titles and one of the non-Janus titles. So you'll be able to see. Now, I wanted to uh, just give a little caveat here because my information was from another Letterboxd list by user Robbie Peters. And uh, he's pretty good. He makes some great lists, especially as far as streaming goes. And so I can trust that the information he provided on his list of the HBO Max films is is a pretty good list. Uh, and, of course, from my understanding is uh, there may be uh, some turnover on there on films added more frequently than than perhaps they have on the Criterion channel. So I'm, uh, I'm hope, hopefully he'll be able to keep that keep that up. But he's, he's doing a great job of doing that. That was Robbie Peters. That's great. And we'll have uh, a link to your lists and uh, have a link to his stuff as well in the show notes. So, All right. Thank you. Uh, thanks for Appreciate coming on board. It. This was great. Uh, Michael, where can people find you online? I'm in the regular Facebook groups, Criterion Now. We have a new Facebook group that was created by uh, Chris Topher called Letterbox List. And if you're like me, if you're crazy about lists, check it out. It's a great Facebook group for people who love lists. And also, of course, on the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group. Awesome. Well, we'll be right back with more Criterion Channel Surfing as Brad and I continue our conversation by talking about June's new releases and expiring titles. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, make sure to check out the Magic Lantern Podcast, hosted by Erica Long and Cole Rulane, exploring the films we love and the things we love about them. 
The Magic Lantern is a film podcast hosted by Eric Long and Cole Rulane devoted to sharing their enduring cinematic memories. Join them for an ongoing, informal discussion of the classic and contemporary films they love and the things they love about them. If you've been looking for a podcast to explore old and new favorites with fellow film lovers, you've come to the right place. New episodes every other Monday. Find out more at magiclanternpodcast.com. Welcome back to Criterion Channel Surfing. I'm here with Brad McDermott, and we're getting ready to dive into the Criterion Channel's new and expiring titles for the month of June. Brad, so we're going to dive into the specifics here in just a little bit, but I just am curious here as we look at the bounty of films that have been added here this month, what are some of your just first thoughts as you look over the 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 great titles that have been added this month well uh it's uh it's great that once again um they're celebrating pride on uh criterion channel um as an lgbt filmmaker uh that's really really important to me and um i really like that um even within the the new queer-sided uh pride section we are getting filmmakers from a lot of different perspectives as well um so the first feature um and we'll we'll get into this film later but the the first feature ever made by a black lesbian filmmaker is included and so i think that's just again like we we mentioned it just speaks to criterion's uh mission of active curation and um changing our concepts of you know what what is canon I also really like, oh God, there's so much to like. So the, the yeah. Mike Lees, um, I love yeah. that they have organized the Czechoslovak New Wave. I, I love Czechoslovak New Wave cinema. There are uh, uh, just masterpieces that came out of that movement. And I love that they are have all, the, the ones that are on, on the channel have been organized here to, to in sort of a nice section um, for everyone to easily access. And yeah little bits here and there some stuff one of my favorite filmmaker ever is making his debut here this month so i am thrilled that's awesome that's awesome well let me do the quick rundown here and then we can dive into our recommendations and the things that we're really excited to dive into so to start off with we have a new art house america film streams from omaha nebraska and it's a repackage of a lot of films that are already in the on the channel uh, city lights seven samurai cleo from five to seven black girl don't look back memories of underdevelopment and burden of dreams we have have directed by Cheryl Dunn with The Watermelon Woman, The Owls, Janine, She Don't Fade, Vanilla Sex, An Untitled Portrait, The Potluck and the Passion, and Greetings from Africa. We have directed by Chantal Ackerman with Hotel Monterey, Je Tu Il Elle, Jean Dillman, News from Home, Les Rendezvous de Anna, Dis Moi, One Day Pina Asked, Golden 80s, Histoires du Marique. From the East, Chantel Ackerman by Chantel Ackerman. South, The Captive. From the Other Side, Down There, Almer's Folly and No Home Movie. We have Queer Sided, Turn the Gaze Around, with Orpheus, Purple Noon, Kirel, My Beautiful Laundrette, My Own Private Idaho, The Watermelon Woman, and Water Lilies. 
We have Directed by Betty Gordon with Variety, Luminous Motion, Michigan Avenue, I-94, The United States of America, Empty Suitcases, and Anybody's Woman. We have Three by Greg Araki with The Living End, Totally Fucked Up, and Mysterious Skin. We have directed by Mike Lee with Meantime, High Hopes, The Short and the Curlies, Life is Sweet, Naked Secrets and Lies, Career Girls, All or Nothing, Vera Drake, Happy Go Lucky, and Another Year. We have a collection of jazz shorts from 1929 to 1939 with a lot of really incredible short films here that look pretty great. We have the Czechoslovak New Wave with Something Different, Black Peter, Courage for Every Day, Diamonds of the Night, Intimate Lighting, and, I mean, the it's a really packed bundle. <laughs> we have the streaming premieres of Zombie Child, Synonyms, and Tarnation. We have a collection of individual titles. These aren't tied to any bundles or tied to any streaming premieres. We have And When I Die, I Won't Stay Dead. We have The Eyes of Orson Welles. But I'm a Cheerleader, Original Cast Album Company, and Olivia. We have the Saturday matinees for Spellbound, the Spelling Bee documentary. We have Into the West, The Count of Monte Cristo, and Born Free. We have Criterion editions of My Own Private Idaho, Husbands, Mafioso, Death in Venice, and the Scorsese shorts. Double features of The Talk of the Town and The Whole Town's Talking. The Naked City and In a Lonely Place, Another Country in Maurice, and Museum Hours and Columbus, Shorts Plus Features of The Red Tree in a Special Day, Call Your Father and Parting Glances, A Bundle of Blues and Anatomy of Murder, The Cabinet of Jan Svankmeyer and Alice, and Dirt Daughter and Red Road. We have a new Observations in film on Film Art with Ozu's Space Adventures, uh, editing in Passing Fancy. We have an addition to the Art House America Loft Cinemas from Tucson, Arizona with Rumble, The Indians Who Rock the World. We have two additions to the Saul Bass Turns 100 with West Side Story and Grand Prix. Uh, and that's, that's the bundles uh this is a a pretty packed month this this month brad tell me what you're what you would recommend people catch tell me what you're excited to see help our listeners sort through the uh titles that have just landed on their doorsteps <laughs> that's a tall order um <laughs> i know i know <laughs> so um, if i could pick a few um i'm gonna start with alice and alice by jens Fankmeyer, who is as I mentioned, my favorite filmmaker is uh, like nothing else that's on on the service. And I know I said that said that last time with um, the brothers Quay, um, mm-hmm. and the brothers Quay paid homage to him with their short film, The Cabinet of Jan Frankmeyer. But here, much like the brothers Quay, he is using this is a filmmaker from Czechoslovakia or, or, or the former Czechoslovakia, and he's sort of like post the post Czech New Wave. Um, in the 80s and 90s was using the tradition of Czech puppet theater, um, the tradition of Czech surrealism, especially uh, uh, how it incorporated to making political points. And he made films that combined live action footage with stop motion animation. And the, the results are some of the most bizarre and disturbing, but not in like, a, it's not a horror movie kind of disturbing. 
Mm. They're disturbing in the way they make you see the sort of the world differently. What he did so masterfully was um, removing music altogether from his films. And the sound effects that you hear through the stop motion animation sequences and in the live action uh, sequences are the same. So it creates a sort of unifying presence when you're watching these films and and the thing the things that are moving and is sort of stopped anime stop motion animation frame rate you're you believe are sort of moving in real life and that's the disturbing element the, and he loves using you know puppets and stuffed animals and plasticine and rotting fruit and skulls and like mm. knickknacks and bits and stuff and it, it um, at, this is Alice, um, his version of Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. Though he, it's more of a riff; it's not a like a a straight adaptation of the book. But what it is is sort of this: his films just confuse our world and another world in a way that I've sort of never experienced before, and that's why I that's why he's my favorite. Mm. Uh, I hope this leads to more films coming down. Um, my my absolute favorite film is Faust. He did, uh, which is in his 1994 version of Faust, combining some many different uh, versions of that story into sort of one wildly strange, surreal trip through the city of Prague. So I'll start off by saying definitely check that one out. The next one I'll go to the Mike Lee, Mike Lee set. So... I highly recommend Happy Go Lucky. It is uh, a great masterpiece that he did not too far off ago. That's maybe a 10-year-old film, I think. And it is the sort of first time I think we all took notice of Sally Hawkins. And she delivers just this like standout performance as someone who is consistently happy and in in her day wandering around London as a school teacher to the to the frustration of so many people and it's one of the i mean mike lee does great um working class england um and he always has and what i but what i think is so special about this film is that it's like it's a philosophy and it's 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 doled out in a way that is not preachy but but highly entertaining and his belief is like happiness is a choice and when you choose to be happy that is sometimes at the cost of relationships with people who have not made that same choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and um, um, Eddie is it Marsden? I can't remember. Yeah, yes. I think so. Yeah, um, who plays her? Um, she's trying to learn how to drive after her bike gets stolen, and he delivers. And he's sort of like her polar opposite. And the two of them have just some electrifying scenes as he teaches her how to drive. I highly recommend. Um, happy-go-lucky um i'm adding there's some some holes in my mike lee and one of them i i can't wait to watch is vera drake uh i love imelda staunton and uh, this is her 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 big movie so i cannot wait to see it um where she plays a um a 1950s a working class woman who performed um illegal abortions for women who needed them and it was sort of a huge landmark case in england at the time so this is his uh, biopic of of Vera Drake. Moving along here, I know this film is sort of in. It has a spine number. I know it has been on 
the collection and the channel for a while, but I think that this is a great time to discover Black Girl by Senegal filmmaker Usamane Sembene, I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I totally apologize if I butchered that. But it is a fantastic film about colonialism and its legacy on um, Senegal and also its legacy on, on France, which, which colonized Senegal. And it features a fantastic central performance. She is a, uh, a woman who has moved from her native Senegal and left her family to France in sort of promise of a better life. But she works as a housekeeper for a very snooty and kind of increasingly horrible French couple that treat her much like a slave. Simabe is great uh, for me because of his use of symbols and especially really politically loaded symbols. He's always great at contrasting them, often with sort of a, a, a satirical sense of humor. And I think he does like this a great job here. This was his feature debut, if if I remember. But if you love his films as I do, I totally recommend Mulade. That's a, a great film about yeah. sort of the history of f- female circumcision and um, its legacy in Africa. Um, it's it's a disturbing topic, but it's not. There's nothing really graphic that you're seeing. It just deals with this issue in a, a masterful way as far as I'm concerned. And Emetai is also a great film, another great film about France's colonization of Senegal and that lasting legacy. Um, so yeah, I totally, totally watch Black Girl. It's a, it's a fantastic film. And I guess my, my fourth, I will move into sort of the queer-sided section. I wanted to recommend The Watermelon Woman, uh, which is, uh, as we had mentioned, the first feature film made by a black lesbian, Cheryl Dunn, which is, it's very 1990s, which I loved. It's, it's a very do-it-yourself, low-budget film and where she plays a version of herself hunting through film history to find the backstory of a, of an uh, a black actress from the 30s and 40s who is only named the watermelon woman and she played these sort of like typical black is it mammy roles uh you know mm. that we would see in films like gone with the wind and she wanted to know more about this woman's history so she is combing through all sorts of different connections in her own personal life and also um, you know, historical archives to try and find out some information about who this woman was. At the same time, she also has a story involving her and her best friend, and they work at a video store together, and then she's starting a relationship with a white woman. And what's great is even though it sort of has a, a do-it-yourself, um, you know, the performances are feel very much of the 1990s. Um, I've seen references to, like, Clerks, but what I think really rises this film is is the filmmaking itself, the recreations that Cheryl Dunn does to to create this uh, the watermelon woman. She wasn't a real actress, so these scenes that we see are Cheryl Dunn recreating with actors these sort of like old movies, um, mm. and she's piecing together all of this material, still photo- still photos, you know, pieces from old films, interviews. Uh, she's really great at taking all of these sort of different medias and different layers of reality to create sort of, uh, and, and it's funny. It's a really funny movie and very entertaining. So uh, it sort of makes you see the legacy of black women on film, black lesbians on film in a like 
in an entertaining and it'll make you sort of see it all in a, in a new perspective than than you might not have than you might have seen before yeah yeah those are great great recommendations you know i will uh, completely echo black girl and the the mike lee stuff um some Benet is uh, I saw Moulad in the theater and oh, great. was blown away by that. And uh uh you know, he is such a fiercely political filmmaker and yet such a deeply uh, humanist filmmaker too. He never loses sight of the people in the midst of the politics, and I just think he's uh he's really incredible. Agreed. Uh and uh yeah i think it's 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 incredible stuff there and uh I, I you know most of the mike lee stuff i've seen about half of the stuff that are in there and so it's it's great that we have this incredible collection to go through um and if you hadn't mentioned the cheryl dunn stuff i probably would have put that as the <laughs> the stuff that i'm really eager to catch because uh it's a big hole for me uh she's a filmmaker that i have heard a lot about and know that i need to uh, dive into her work and you know the the 90s elevated so many mediocre white guys oh yes <laughs> so many uh bad indie indie films that that followed the clerks model yeah yeah and uh you know it's it's really sad to me that uh you know, I, I have heard nothing but great things about Watermelon Woman and about Cheryl Dunn's work. And, uh, you know, she's been a neglected filmmaker. And I am really uh, happy that Criterion isn't just releasing The Watermelon Woman, but uh, a package of her work uh, so that we can shine a spotlight on this filmmaker who, you know, has kind of cult status, but honestly has been pretty neglected by the film community. Oh, and, definitely. Uh, so this is great. And she's she's incredibly talented. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's great. No, thank. I think those are really great recommendations, Brad. Thank you. I'm gonna do some a couple of uh, recommendations on the uh, pride angle. I want to do a make a push for a, a maybe not a double feature, but a, a twofer of uh, my own private Idaho and Olivia. My Own Private Idaho is Gus Van Sant's retelling of uh, the kind of the Orson Welles chimes at midnight, uh, Henry the Fourth. I remember being so surprised when I saw it, uh, how how experimental it was. You know, Gus Van Sant is a filmmaker that I came to late in some ways. I think I started watching his films with To Die For. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of late with Gus Van Sant as well. Like Goodwill, Goodwill Hunting is kind of my entry point. Yeah, and and you know you you see, you know I I still think he's a really interesting filmmaker, but a lot of times you know filmmakers as they get older they lose some of that experimental edge, and there are so many just incredible moments in my own private Idaho that blow me away, and uh, I had just seen the chimes of uh, chimes at midnight. Uh, uh, recently uh just before my own private idaho and in watching my own private idaho i was just blown away by how how closely van sant follows the the shakespeare play uh again henry the fourth and just how uh how much he plays and how how much fun he's having in the film and uh it's a really 
really enjoyable film with some incredible performances by Keanu Reeves and by River Phoenix. It's one of those things that uh, makes me sad that I take Mansant for granted sometimes. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's great. And Olivia is, I think it's one of the earliest films directed by a woman in France. And it is uh, a film that is about lesbian relationships in this girls' boarding school. And uh, it's all very... Uh, under the surface, but uh, I watched it during my at-home film festival a few weeks ago, and I was really surprised by how, even though it's all under the surface, it's all very clearly there, and I don't know how anyone, even at the time, could have missed the romantic overtones to everything that was going on there. It's a it's a great film. It very much feels like a boarding school drama, but just is handled more delicately. It's handled with more honesty about uh, female sexuality. And um, it's it's really worth checking out. So I think those are two uh, on that uh, note that I think uh, I would highly recommend. I would also really recommend the Chantel Ackerman bundle for anyone who has not yet started to look at her work. She is a really incredible filmmaker who was consistently challenging form and uh, using cinematic form to explore uh, the lives of women and explore uh, feminist ideologies in some really interesting ways. So I think that's a a bundle to really uh, dig into while it's on the channel. There are some films that are parts of the permanent collection, but there's a lot there that is uh, only on there for a limited period of time. So don't sleep on a lot of these films there. I am really, really excited for the streaming premieres of Zombie Child and Synonyms. So those are ones that I'm eager to catch. Me too. Yeah, I think these are ones that I just... I missed in theaters and um, I just can't wait for. And uh, I just recently, uh, again, during the At Home Film Festival, did a dive into uh, Orson Welles's The Other Side of the Wind and uh, the documentary They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Those are great. So I am here for The Eyes of Orson Welles and I'm very excited to catch that documentary as well. So, you know, this is... Again, you know, I just feel like every month we're just given this bounty of riches and I have a hard time choosing what pieces I'm or what films I'm uh, most excited for. Well, as I like to say around this part, uh, Criterion gives and Criterion taketh away. We have a lot of films that we are losing this month. Uh, Not as many as as in some of the the worst months, but it still is quite a few films that that we're getting rid of. So we are losing the rest of the Dog's Life bundle that are uh, temporary. We're losing A Boy and His Dog, Baxter, and Le Quattro Volte. We're losing the final films from the Sci-Fi bundle, Death Race 2000, God Told Me To, Dark Star, and A Boy and His Dog. We're losing the entire directed by Louis Bunuel bundle, La Age d'Or, Death in the Garden, Diary of a Chambermaid. Uh, there's just there's a lot there that we're losing. 
we're losing almost every film from the Gene Arthur bundle, uh, including Whirlpool, The Whole Towns, Talking, Public Hero Number One, Party Wire, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, The Ex Mrs. Bradford, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and so many more. It looks like the only one that is still remaining is History is Made at Night. We are losing the entire Four by Khalik Allah bundle. We're losing most of the starring Gary Cooper bundle. It looks like only A Farewell to Arms and Man of the West are going to be remaining. And uh, we're going to be losing things like The Winning of Barbara Worth, Lilac Time, Wedding Night. We're going to be losing the entire Colombian noir bundle. Uh, Blind Alley, My Name is Julia Ross. Uh, We're going to be losing Adam Resurrected from the Meet the Filmmakers bundle. We're going to be losing the three by Otto Preminger bundle with uh, Bonjour Triste, uh, Bunny Lake is Missing, and Anatomy of a Murder. We're going to be losing, again, this is uh, a bundle that comes and goes, it seems, uh, The from the Meet the Filmmakers, the Safdie Brothers bundle. We're going to be losing The Pleasure of Being Robbed and Daddy Longlegs, but the shorts are going to still remain. From the 70s Style bundle, we're going to be losing Foxy Brown and Shampoo. From the Toshiro Mifune Turns 100 bundle, we're going to be losing Red Sun. From starring Burt Lancaster, we're going to be losing Conversation Piece and Atlantic City, which happened to pop back up on the channel, even though it had disappeared uh, recently. And uh, from the Saul Bass Turns 100 bundle, we're going to be losing Around the World in 80 Days, Bonjour Triste, Anatomy of a Murder, Ocean's Eleven, Bunny Lake is Missing, and Phase uh, 4. From the Early Douglas Cirque bundle, we're going to be losing Shockproof and Slightly French. From Directed by Federico Fellini, we're going to be losing Knights of Cabiria. From Directed by Jane Campion, we're going to be losing Two Friends. We're going to be losing the Criterion edition of Panique. We're going to be losing the uh, Raging Bull Laserdisc edition. We're going to be losing the Saturday matinees of Captain Courageous and Around the World in 80 Days. And then we're going to be losing a bunch of individual titles that were either parts of double features or parts of bundles that have since expired and I couldn't find out where they were, uh, what they were part of. Uh, we're going to be losing The Limey, Mulholland Drive, Songs My Brother Taught Me, Waja, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, and Down to Earth. So it's uh, there's a lot of films that I really want to catch, and I just don't know that I'm going to be able to catch them all. Brad, what are what are you going to uh, recommend that people catch? Uh, what are you hoping to catch before uh, they leave? How are we going to try to help people navigate this stuff? I don't know how I'm going to help everyone navigate it, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> I will try my best to recommend a few things. The four by Kalikala, I, I recommend those. They are. Uh, from a filmmaker with a different perspective that we don't see on the collection. And his films primarily deal with poverty um, and the lower class in uh, New York City. They're often shot right on the corner of Lexington and 125th Street in Harlem and deal with interviews and also kind of documentary with the the cast of characters that sort of come in the nighttime in that intersection what i really like his films are very experimental and they don't um they don't they're not easy classified as to whether it's fiction or documentary more like creates an atmosphere 
uh, with yeah. his films. And he does what he does so well is a, a disconnect between the images uh, of the people that you're seeing, which are all beautifully photographed, um, and the sounds of them. And he likes to layer them, layer this with ambient music, echoing effects, uh, even music like like famous like slave songs. Um, he'll like layer in the background so that they're almost like subliminal. He is constantly trying to weave these people that you meet into sort of a broader web of the intersections of, of race, of class, uh, and to create a, like a, a, a sort of a vision of New York and, and these, these people that are sort of the forgotten people of, of the city, unfortunately. I hope I'm not making it sound too, like, too upsetting, but... Um, they are they're just uh an experience to watch so i mean i do highly recommend them yeah it's kind of like watching uh poetry yes that was my experience listening to him talk in the criterion channel interview about how he by removing that that synchronized sound it allows uh him to to not objectify his subjects as much and uh, there's just something really, really incredible about that technique. And uh, when you watch the films in order uh, and you see in Urban Rashomon, you see him wrestling with the idea of... Yeah, objectification. Yeah, yeah as an, as an artist. <laughs> yeah, the way, he, the way he starts to detach from his own humanity. You see his style evolving as an artist because he felt himself detaching from uh from the people that he was documenting and uh it's just it's it's incredible it's really incredible and uh the very next film you see him actually really beginning to engage more and uh it's it's pretty incredible so yeah i i wholeheartedly recommend these ones as well yeah so the next one I will recommend is God Told Me To. <laughs> so I'm doing a great big left turn here. <laughs> um, I love Larry Cohen and uh, his films are insane. Uh, so he he was a filmmaker, I think, in the 70s. And he really embraced a sort of do-it-yourself, um, pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps kind of filmmaking. And his films are always in in genres so here god mm. told me to is is a s- sort of sci-fi genre i mean if if you know the film q the winged serpent that's his giant his monster movie is genre um and i i love the film it's alive i think that's a, a masterpiece that he did and that's a horror genre that's a sort of riff on things like the exorcist and um, you know, your demon children movies. But what he does so well is always incorporating the bigger picture. So God Told Me To is a film about people who are committing mass murders in the street under the belief that God has told them to do this. So mm-hmm. the the film interweaves, like, um, it's always the bigger bigger ideas of, like, religious legacies and legacy dynasty families within uh, religious organizations and sort of the cost of that and sort of the some of the self-righteousness that comes with that and that's always been the case with his films where he's always using genre to to say something larger even though you feel his films are just made on a shoestring budget but he's a he's Mm. a smart smart filmmaker 
he's really great with his uh, uh, handheld um, steady cams, and he he knows editing. He knows how to create mood and pacing, even if it seems like he it's from nothing. Um, so I highly recommend you check out God Told Me To before it disappears. It's a great access into Larry Cohen's work. The next one I would like to recommend is The Big Heat, and that is part of the Columbia Noir, and we have kind of a noir theme going this episode, so I wanted to uh, bring this up, and especially because I wanted to talk about Fritz Lang afterwards as well. And this is, this, uh, I think people would probably generally consider this the best of Fritz Lang's sort of Hollywood era after he left mm. Germany and started making films in in a, in in America in Hollywood and it's uh it's a really gritty noir and some of the most like cruel but entertaining plot twists that I've seen in noirs and it is a, it also has great performances from especially its female performances from Gloria Graham and Jocelyn Brando they are just uh, standouts and what happens to them and what they do is it's fantastic it's about like police corruption and has not lost um, any of its sort of nasty edge um, so definitely yeah. check out uh, the big heat before it leaves the last one I'm going to uh, I haven't seen the, this last film but um, the conversation piece is Visconti's uh, final feature film also with Burt Lancaster, who came back, um, they had worked together, uh, most famously, everyone knows in The Leopard. But it's just great to to see this final Visconti so easily. It's also sort of the same month where they're premiering Death in Venice. So it'd be great to have sort of a Visconti late period double feature. Mm. I like that we're, we're getting his sort of post-Leopard films, his uh, the films he made sort of German in Germany and stuff like that into the channel so that people can see that there's sort of this other chapter at the end of Visconti's career, which maybe is not as appreciated as sort of the stretch uh, from, you know, Rocco and his brothers and Senso and, uh, you know, the leopard that, that most people are familiar with. So, yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I really, really am eager to catch god told me to now after <laughs> your uh discussion of that and i keep forgetting that conversation pieces was conti so that's uh that's what i'll have to try to fit in this month and yeah i have to i have to echo your recommendation for big heat i think that was the the noir that surprised me the most during the first colombian noir go round uh it completely surprised me and the fact that it took some of the risks that it did oh, yeah. shocked me. Yep. There's one shot I think everybody remembers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's great. I uh, just want to give a couple of quick recommendations and then there's a, a lot that I'm uh, very eager for. I really want to Make sure that people don't miss Knights of Kiberia if they haven't had a chance to see it yet. It is out of print on uh, Criterion Disc. Uh, it's my favorite Fellini. Oh, wow. It's the the Fellini that... Uh, it's honestly the film that really uh, helped me click into arthouse cinema. Oh, wow. And uh, it's, it's one of those films that just holds a special place in my heart. Yeah, I didn't know uh, that. It is beautiful. 
and uh, yeah, it's just it's a gorgeous film. You know, uh, kind of my my story for for art house cinema is uh, I had been going through some of the AFI films and was getting bored with the AFI top 100 films and started watching through Roger Ebert's uh, great films list and Knights of Kiberia was on there and it was then that it really clicked this kind of uh, world cinema bent and that was what really kind of got me into Criterion films and uh, really helped whet my appetite for being a little more adventurous as a film goer and uh, I just think Knights of Kiberia is a really special film. It's it's funny because that's my most recent Fellini that I've seen is actually nice. Oh, interesting. Because that was a big hole. Um, I, you know, yeah. I've seen The Greats, Eight and a Half, and Dolce Vita. Yep. And then yep. the later stuff like Satyricon. But I had never seen Knights of Kabiri because it had been out of print for so long. So when it came back yes. to the, the channel, I got a chance to see it. And, and it's so great because there's so many elements of Eight and a Half and Dolce Vita that, that are here. And you can see how he he grew from from that in, into mm-hmm. those films out of his uh you know the neorealist stuff that he did like la strada so earlier yeah it's a really it's a really beautiful film and you know you know you you really you really see his th- there's a warmth here that i think is uh is really lovely and uh yeah i just i i love the film and i know a lot of people have seen it but i do think that we have a lot of people that are new to the Criterion channel that maybe haven't had a chance to to catch this yet. And it's easy to overlook some of these films when uh, there are so many limited engagement bundles that are brand new each month. So that's one that I just, I can't recommend highly enough. When you're uh, looking at the Gene Arthur bundle, I know it's uh, a little daunting when there are so many films in that bundle. But uh, a couple that uh, I've seen that I think are really fun are The Devil and Miss Jones and The Ex Mrs. Bradford. These are really charming, very enjoyable films. The Devil and Miss Jones in particular, I think, is uh, it's the story of a, a wealthy businessman who goes undercover uh, at one of his department stores to try to stop them from becoming unionized. And uh, there are so many things that feel very current. Uh, <laughs> the the businessman is as belligerent and bullish as uh, our current American president. Yeah. And uh, there are some very, very funny, funny bits throughout uh, and... Uh, it's a it's it's a charmer, and uh, I just recently watched the X Mrs. Bradford, which uh, is a a bit of a murder mystery with William Powell and Jean Arthur, and uh, it's it's charming. Uh, so those are some great places if you just don't know where to begin or or what to watch. Uh, I think those are really fun ones. I am really uh, excited to watch some of these early Douglas Sirk films. Those are films that, you know, he's a filmmaker that I really love his later work. And so I'd love to have some time to really delve into his early films and uh, learn more about his roots. So those are films that I'm, I'm eager for. And I am also uh, really eager to catch songs my brother taught me. Chloe Zhao, who is a uh, more recent uh, filmmaker that uh, people are praising uh, 
the the things that she's done with the writer and uh, she's directing one of the more recent Marvel films. I, you know, she's a, a filmmaker that uh, I'd love to see her her early work as well. So I think this is a uh, a film that uh, I definitely need to catch before it leaves the channel because uh, uh, some of these these films are harder to see. So those are going to be my my films that I will definitely try to catch before they leave. Mm, sounds good. Well, um, there we go. We made it through the new and expiring titles. Those are uh, the Criterion Channel's new and expiring titles for the month of June. Brad and I will be right back to talk about films noir and films that are inspired by noir that are part of the Criterion Channel's permanent digital library. But first, I'll be speaking with Becky Diana about entry points to the films of Ingmar Bergman. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, check out Criterion Reflections, hosted by David Blakesley. Join David and his guests on their chronological journey through the films of the Criterion Collection. Each episode provides an in-depth discussion into the cultural context for the films discussed and covers Criterion releases on DVD, Blu-ray, Laserdisc, and the Criterion Channel. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. I'm here with Becky Diana, frequent guest on FlixWise, FlixWise Canada, Wrong Reel, Film Baby Film, and the Criterion Now podcasts. Becky, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I'm so honored that you asked me. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about entry points to the films of Ingmar Bergman. And, you know, if you don't have the massive and gorgeous cinema of Ingmar Bergman box set that Criterion released a few years ago, uh, you know, most of those films are on the Criterion channel. But it can maybe seem a little daunting for people who have never decided to start their journey into the films of Ingmar Bergman. And, and I've seen uh, people in our Facebook groups kind of wonder where to start and they might dive into one film and wonder where to go next. So uh, you're a, a huge Bergman aficionado. And so for people who maybe haven't heard you on other podcasts, uh, why don't you talk just a little bit about how you got into the films of Bergman and uh, why does Bergman mean so much to you? Yeah, so I got introduced to Bergman in 2001, so 19 years ago. Um, Jamie Hancock, who is the host of Wrong Reel, uh, he and I were interns at a movie studio together in college. And then when he he moved out to L.A. right after college, and we hung out a lot together and saw a lot of films together. And he dragged, not dragged me, but he's like, hey, they're showing Ingmar Bergman's persona at the LACMA um, mm. in Los Angeles. And he had thought I would love it. And so it was my first Bergman film. And I was just completely floored by it. I mean, it's definitely one of his experimental films. I'm not sure it's like yeah. the best entry point, as we're going to talk about <laughs> entry points to Bergman. Uh, I definitely don't think it's the best entry point to Bergman, but it was a, it, it ended up being a great one for me because I was just absolutely floored by it. I thought it was wonderful. And it, I had so many questions, and I just thought it was gorgeous. And obviously it had two of his biggest muses, Lee Volman and B.B. Um, Anderson in it. And I just wanted to see more after that. And so I ended up, there was a movie theater called The New Beverly uh, that um, was pretty close to my house. And I ended up, they showed a lot of Bergman films. 
Um, so I just kind of started seeing, I think they showed like two a month. So I, I started seeing mm. more of his films in the theater there. And then there was a video store called Rocket Video on La Brea. I'm doing, this is very LA focused. So <laughs> if you're in LA, you might know what I'm talking about. Uh, and they had a whole section on Igmar Bergman and they pretty much had every VHS that had, or um, they had a few DVDs that had Bergman films. So I decided I, I just, after seeing about five or six of his movies, after seeing Persona, and then I saw Hour of the Wolf and Seven Seal and some others at the New Bev, I just decided I just can't get enough of this guy. He's amazing. And I decided to see his films in chronological order. And I felt like I could do that through Rocket Video, which had so many of his films. So I actually created this Excel spreadsheet of all of Bergman's films. Hmm. And I put them in order. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to go through them in order. And um, what I decided to do was I feel, felt like I could see them all in a year um, or less if I just watched like two every other weekend. So every other weekend on a Friday night, I would get takeout and uh, get rent to at Rocket Video and then watch his movies and just really let them wash over me. And I ended up uh, finishing all the films that I could get my hands on prop within that year. And I just, I've never been more in love with the director. Like he really spoke to me on for, on so many levels and it was so amazing going through his films in a chronological order. I do really like the how Criterion has laid out the films and, the, and they definitely have laid them out a, in a great way to consume them. But watching them chronologically was so amazing for me because Bergman has so many themes throughout his, really his, his filmography that he explores and it's fun to see all that. And also he has two distinct uh, cinematographers that he uses, Gunnar Fischer, that he used from 1948 to 1958. Um, and he used uh, Sven Nikvist, which was essentially 1959 to 2004. He, they all have very different looks of how they photograph. So you get to see the, the different, the looks of his films and, and how, and how those cinematographers are different. Also in the fact that, he essentially has alter egos that he uses throughout his films that represent who he is. And one of the things that I think was drawn to about Bergman the most was that he re really wrestles with his demons on screen um, throughout yeah. his whole filmography. So there's things that he deals with, like he has a real he had a really poor relationship with his parents and he ultimately goes and deals with that through there's Fanny Alexander and and Wild Strawberries and there's so many films that he, he deals with that and then he has he wrestles with faith he wrestles with religion he has a fear of death one of the things that he's most afraid of is being alone and you get to see all those things he kind of works them out on on screen and it's really extraordinary to watch them if you watch them chronologically mm. and and as like and in the early films the like I said his alter egos were uh, Burrier Momstead. Um, well, actually, it was Stig Olin first, who was in Crisis and Two Joy. Burrier Momstead was in Ship to India, Night is My Future in Prison. Then there's Gunnar Bjornstrand. Then there's Max von Sydow. Then there's Erlen Josephson. But these Bergman alter egos, essentially what they were, were they all suffered from spiritual maladies in a way. And mm -hmm. that in the end, love and self-knowledge kind of set them free. And so he really the heroes of most of his films are women. And he's and he and you also get to see through movies like Summer Interlude and on, how he really gets drawn to women and the women's psyche and the men are sort of like inferior, but really it's a reflection of his own self because that's how he saw himself. So anyway, 
one of the reasons why uh, I always really try to ask people to try to see his films in chronological order is that you get to see really all these things develop. But there's something wrong with seeing them in the order the Criterion Collection has them in and sets. And there's films that I think if you're daunted by Bergman, I definitely think that we can talk about in a second are films that I think are are ones to get drawn to that are easier to get into his, his filmography. But I just, I think in general, what has drawn me to him is his dialogue. I think that's the cornerstone of his films. I just think that he has, he's an extraordinary writer and he's, he's directed um, pretty much almost all the films that he's written and his films are sort of like literature in a way. He didn't uh, write uh, Three Strange Loves, Brink of Life, Virgin Spring, This Can't Happen Here, but he's almost all of his films are, are directed from his own scripts and he's just an extraordinary writer and his dialogue is just phenomenal. And oftentimes characters, one of the themes in his uh, films is what I always, I call brutal confrontations is when characters really just completely tear each other apart and tell them what they think of each other. And it's really fascinating. And he does that through a lot of his films. So it's just fascinating. And um, his, the dialogue, I think, is is just, if you're a fan of dialogue or just great performances, then I think Bergman's the person for you. But he just, I, I'm, I just absolutely love him, as you can see. And I'm sort of like a Bergman disciple. I call myself a Bergman disciple because mm. I always just want to spread just knowledge and love about him to, to everybody because he's so amazing. Like I just did um, in January, I was asked to teach a six hour lecture on Igmar Bergman. And wow. um, yeah, and it was such an honor to do that. And it was so cool. I got, it was a bunch of college kids and they were so enraptured and they didn't know anything about Bergman. They had only, I think only one of them had seen a Bergman film and I got to take, take them through really his life and his themes. And then I went through and, and showed them two of his films. And it was really a transformative um, experience for me. And all of the students were just amazing and they asked such amazing questions. So uh, yeah, so I, I like to, at any time I get asked about Bergman, I love to just talk about him. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. My wife and I have been slowly working our way through the box set together. And uh, my wife is uh, a writer and she loves film, but is not as, uh, as into film as I am. And uh, she absolutely has fallen in love with Bergman wow. as well. And uh, so we uh, are absolutely enjoying going on this journey through Bergman cinema together and taking our time through it and just savoring each of those films. Oh yeah. Uh, and reading the essays and, uh, and it is really interesting to go through it in the curated box set order mm -hmm. and kind of going through and seeing those thematic connections that Criterion's making. And there is that, that need to kind of do some of the mental work of figuring out, okay, well, where is this in Bergman's life and career? And sure. how is, how, where, where's the development? Where, where is he in his own chronology? And how is he how is he developing? Um, and that is probably the downside to doing it in that kind of less chronological way. Yeah. And it, I think, the, I mean, unless you're reading about him as you go, and it sounds like you are, um, I think you're getting a lot. The thing about his films, though, and that's what I love what you mentioned about his about your wife loving him is that he's so accessible. And that's one of the things that I try to 
spread of whenever I'm on a show is for some reason I'm constantly, you know, there's just this idea that he's just like esoteric and just not like very bleak. And he does, um, you know, deal with bleak issues, but there's so many, he's a humanist and he, he really appreciates yeah. the, um, humanity and that's what he explores. And there's so many extraordinary things that he has his characters like say to each other and, and learn about themselves. And also there's moments in his films that celebrate life and, and happiness and, and what makes life worth living. And, and you can see that even in a film like shame and through a glass darkly and, and uh, cries and whispers and seven seal. There's always moments of, of true joy that show that, life is wonderful and I just think people don't dwell on those and I think uh, if you are a fan of just really, like I said, great dialogue and great writing, you would love him. And I think, I don't know if people think he's like Tarkovsky or something Like they yeah. think it's going to be, I don't know if they think it's like a slow moving thing where it's going to be like a vase. And then there's just like water pouring. And it's not like, it's not like that. Like his films are filled with dialogue and they're, you know, not even that long. A lot of them are 90 minutes long. And once you get into them and break that barrier, thinking that maybe he's bleak, I, most, I mean, most people I know that were afraid to get into him end up loving him and that he ended up becoming a, one of their favorite directors. So it's so nice to hear that, that your wife really loves him. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've heard you say on other podcasts that uh, Cries and Whispers is not a good entry point. And I think that may <laughs> have been my first Bergman as I was working my way through Roger Ebert's great films list. Oh, okay. And I, I definitely, it was definitely a lot of work. I, I didn't connect with it immediately, uh -huh. but it was one that left me intrigued. It was one that left me intrigued with, with Bergman and uh, coming back to it after having put some more Bergman under my belt, I will agree that it probably was not a good entry point for Bergman, but uh, it definitely uh, is one that I, I love now. Uh, yeah. I've seen it much uh, later. Yeah, it's a. I think it's a challenging movie, but it's it's really rewarding. It's a great film, and it's just very stark with yeah. you know in with the red walls and and really just the subject matter. I mean, there's certain things that characters do that you're if you actually describe them, they could just be horrifying. You can describe yeah. in words what some of the stuff that happens on the screen. But I think some people misunderstand when I say that sometimes, and you're not. But sometimes I think people think, oh, that I'm saying that it's not a good film, and that I think it's a great film. It's just Bergman's filmography is so wonderful and there's so many different periods of his career mm -hmm. that are amazing like in the 50s and the 60s and like I said you can see his th themes develop but I don't think that Cries and Whispers is a representative of his body of work and I think if you saw a movie like that first it's great because like I don't think Persona is a representative of his body of work either yeah. I love Persona and it, it was enough to intrigue me but I feel like I'm just worried that somebody might see a movie like Cries and Whispers and think that all of his films are like that. And it's yeah. not like a persona and Cries and Whispers are sort of his experimental films. Passion of Anna is kind of like a free form film, which is really unlike anything in his filmography, too. But the 50s films are probably a better entry point or even a 60s films. But I just worry that someone's going to see Cries and Whispers and like run screaming from the hills at that because it's really it's if it's not for them, 
anime, you know, that movie is not for a lot of people, <laughs> I think. And it's funny, I've mentioned this story before that I was at a party before and I met this guy and he met, he asked me, we were talking about film and I mentioned that I was a huge fan of Bergman. This is like 15 years ago. And uh, he's like, oh, I don't really like Bergman. And um, I'm like, well, what films have you seen? And he's like, oh, I've only seen Cries and Whispers. <laughs> and that's why I was like, no, just because it's like, I don't, you know, if someone's like, I only see Cries and Whispers and then they're just like, he's not for me. It, it, there's so many other films you need to see because yeah. that film isn't representative of his body work. And like I said, it's a great film. I just don't know. Maybe it's the fourth or fifth film. It is funny though. I have some friends that it was their first film just like you and mm -hmm. they loved it and it was they're like let's I'm, I'm all about this guy so yep. if that's your first film and you're in it in and you want to see more I think you'll also be surprised to know that that his films aren't like that were you yeah. surprised when you saw more of his films or did you I, think that that was representative I I think I was surprised that more of his films were more accessible I think yeah. uh you know because that film is more work Mm -hmm. uh, it takes a little bit more to really dig into it and to get at the meanings and to parse it out. Like Persona. And it's really bleak. Yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. bleak film. And when people mention that he's bleak, I mean, that's the perfect example mm -hmm. of just like mm -hmm. there's no hope in this movie. Yeah. Although there is that one wonderful scene that where they're walking through the park that is really beautiful and joyous, which is an example of, like I said, that he has moments like that. But yeah, it's a challenging movie. Yeah. And, and then I think the next one I had seen was uh, Seventh Seal, which is a little more representative yes. of his work. And mm -hmm. uh, and then I was surprised at how accessible that was. Yes. After having seen Cries and Whispers. And suddenly I'm like, oh, I could watch this, you know, all day. Yeah. Yeah, Seventh Seal is, um, so the movies that I suggested that are great entry points, just if you want to get into Bergman, not if you have the box set, then I'm not, uh, if you're, you know, feel like it's daunting, these are great films, but I think more so people who are just like, just movie fans that are, oh, well, what's Bergman about? I think the best way is, with the two films I showed in that class, that lecture I did was I showed Seven Seal and I showed Wild Strawberries. And mm. those are both the films from 1957. I think that those are very different films, but really great entry points. Another great entry point, I think, is Through Glass Darkly. I think that's mm. another very accessible film. And they all deal with different thematics of his of his life, stuff he explores. But I think they really give you a great sense. And I think Wild Strawberries is really wonderful because, you know, it's a takes place in an afternoon, kind of like Winter Light, but it's not as um, bleak as Winter Light. But, you know, this professor travels from Stockholm to Loon to, to pick up an award. And along the way, he meets people and he reminisces about his life and he ends up becoming um, a better person in the end and he also ends up becoming realizing accepting who he is and for that movie in general like at the end of it that character uh, Victor Schistrom really represented Bergman and at the end he comes back to his parents he realizes that he loves his parents and Bergman has dealed with having a poor relationship with his parents his whole life and that the end of that movie there's a small scene it's not really giving anything away where he kind of sees his parents at the end it's really showing that it was his way of really coming back to his parents like I said mm -hmm. he really deals with his demons on screen and 
he sort of repaired his relationship with his parents after that film. Um, and he wanted his parents to see him and understand that he saw them too. And it's it's just great. And all the things like looking in a mirror and having it confront, you know, truth you're unwilling to accept, that's a big theme and mirrors. And um, religion's a massive theme, which I think it would Seven Seal really struggle, shows that. Like for Bergman, he struggled, like he called it all of his life with, I think he says, a tormented and joyless relationship with God because mm. his father was a minister. And yeah. he had... Um, it was something that he dealt with his whole life. And there, it's so interesting to see he's re really wrestling with God in the seventh seal. And, you know, I got raised Catholic. And I remember when I first saw seventh seal, I'm like, oh, my gosh, is it OK for him to say these things? And I think that's what's so shocking and what's so cool about it is that Max von Sydow's character is saying things about questioning religion, questioning God. And it's like you know, it was things that you may think about whenever actually put into words and his characters actually say these things. And it's just fascinating. And that Max von Sydow's character is the knight in that movie. And he's just, he really wants to believe that his life is worth living. He wants to believe that there's a God and all of those things are really things that Bergman is dealing with. And then he did the religious trilogy that deals with it. And later when he, he had the surgery, Bergman in real life had the surgery and um, he kind of lost a few minutes of his life. And then to him, that helped him feel like God didn't exist. And and that actually made him feel happier about like, oh, because I think his he had a real big fear of death and he didn't want to, he didn't like that he couldn't control what was going to happen after he died. And knowing that there, like to him, believing that there was no nothing after death made him feel better about life. And it's just interesting because you can see this surgery happened to him around uh, 1966, 67. So you kind of see after that, he doesn't really explore religion anymore. Because he dealed with that for 10 years in his films and he dealt with it and he explored it. But that's what's so great, like I said, about going through his films in chronological order, because a lot of the stuff that he's dealing with, like his childhood and his and loneliness and and being away from his parents and religion, he really does explore those. And then, like, again, when he deals with it, he sort of moves on to a different thematic. So, yeah. That's why I think, and Seventh Seal is just such an extraordinary film on so many levels, and it's so important to international cinema and, and its rise of the international cinema in America. So it's just a great movie. And, and Wild Strawberries, I mean, anybody can relate to, it's sort of like a Christmas carol, like he kind of deals with yeah. his own life and 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 becoming a better person. And um, and also all, both of those scenes have the brutal confrontations I'm talking about and amazing dialogue and just profound and introspective, but also wonderful. So those are the ones that I really think are great ones to start off with. And also like a through glass darkly starts off with a very beautiful scene of a family running out of running out of the ocean and they're very happy. And then you find out there's all this inner turmoil, but that one's really easy to relate to as well. So there are so many of his films that are really just like so rewarding. I mean, it's, it's interesting. He, like I said, he almost has 60 films and I think there's maybe one or two or maybe two or three that aren't masterpieces. Yeah. I think those are three really incredible starting points, right. You know, mm -hmm. to, to launch people in their, their journey on with Bergman. And again, it can be overwhelming when you look at how vast his career is. So let's say that you have someone who's starting with Winter Light or Seventh Seal or Through a Glass Darkly. 
is there any particular kind of broad journey that you would guide them through? Um, would you recommend they tackle certain periods first before moving on to other periods? Uh, or do you have any, any kind of maybe guidance as people are working their way through his films? Uh, no, I mean, I think I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of going in, in order just yeah. because um, I, I but I mean, I think I did it. And I think in the beginning, I, I ended up picking out the four or five films that I heard the most about and saw those first. And then I decided to go in order. So that could be what you could do, too, is films that you like the most. But I do think the religious trilogy is best if you see it um, all together in chronological order. I think it's more rewarding that way. I, Seven Seals is a great one to see before the religious trilogy because it really does show him wrestling religion. You can really see him really questioning mm. um, and having a spiritual crisis and then really seeing even more of that in Winter Light. And then at the end, because um, God's not really even really mentioned in uh, Through Glass Darkly, except for the end when they mention love is God. But he kind of celebrates the beauty of God. But then there's like this image of a spider sort of the end. And then Winter Light is a real spiritual crisis. And then the silence is sort of like the absence of God. But I think those are really amazing to see in order. The 40s and the 50s are great. Just they're so romantic and wonderful, a lot of those mm. movies. And they explore. Have, has your, what, have you guys seen uh, Summer Interlude together yet, you and your wife? Yes, we have. I've seen that one. Yeah. Yeah. That's see, that's my favorite Bergman movie. And it's just so wildly romantic. And it but it also is dark. I mean, there's there's so many amazing thematics that explores in that movie but that film ends and it's just such a wonderful romantic soaring ending and it's you know i think that any anybody that loves romance would love that movie but it also deals with Mm. a lot of other underlying issues but um that that film just completely floored me and um and and then he there's a huge sequence of her looking in the mirror and and confronting her true self and becoming a better person too which is a big thematic of his I just love that film, but that film isn't celebrated as much. You know, Shame's another great one. So I, maybe tackle the religious films and then Shame, I think, is another great one because it deals with uh, the chaos of war and really not taking a side because there's not like a side that you know is good or bad. And that's really mm. fascinating. And then, you know, then they have the, then he goes in through more experimental stuff at the end. I know some people love the 70s and 80s movies. I think Jamie Hancock's one of those people too who he really loves like like Cries and Whispers and and a lot of the the 70s 80s. Those films are great too. I just I, I feel like you've really got to go into maybe if seeing those religious ones in order like like I said Seventh Seal and then maybe the religious trilogy and then going through some key ones like Magician and Virgin Spring in order will be great. And then all those other earlier ones like Brink of Life and yeah. um, and Dreams and all those are wonderful too um and they're great to see sort of together as well but i think you if you really want to go through the you know if you want to see just like the really important films of his then i would start with the 50s and the 60s and then maybe then go back to the 40s and then go to the 70s i mean autumn sonata is another just extraordinary Mm. film in the 70s but it is just so fun to see, like I said, if you do see stuff in order, like I said, you could see all his alter egos and yeah. um, how those actors develop and really um, what he says about himself. And then just to see, like, he's essentially, he's dating a lot of the women in his movies. <laughs> you get to see how they're in a certain batch of films, but they always sort of come back to, like, Harry Anderson came back to work with him. Even though she was in a lot of the movies in the beginning, she came back for Cries and Whispers and Fanny and Alexander. Fanny and Alexander is another one that's just... 
amazing. And then like there's this TV period, like scenes from a marriage and, and Fanny and Alexander. I think those could be daunting if you're like, oh my gosh, they're, you know, four hours or six hours or whatever. But those are made for TV movies. So you can see them in episodes. Yeah. You can see them. Yeah. You can break, especially scenes from marriage. You can watch one 40 minute there's like six, I think, 40 minute ones and you can you can just watch them one a night and totally get the same impact out of them and then yeah. seeing them in one sitting. I don't know if you get like some sort of prize by seeing them all in one sitting. <laughs> um, but yeah, and Fanny and Alexander, you could split that up in two nights too and that's a great movie to see around Christmas. It's just so funny to think about when we talk about it. There's, I've just listed like, what, how many 20 different movies or I know, something. yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, and Smiles of the Summer Night's another wildly romantic, really fun, uplifting, funny movie. So he has so many amazing films. Some are funny and some are wildly romantic and some are really wrestling with spiritual crisis and religion and being alone. Igmar Bergman is so rewarding on so many levels. And I just started rewatching some of his movies that I haven't seen in like, um, you know, since I first discovered them in 2001. Like I just rewatched Dreams and Brink of Life and I haven't seen them since 2001. And it was just like, wow. Uh, you know, I remember parts of them, but I couldn't like if you asked me to be on a podcast to talk about Brink of Life you know, a month ago, I would have had to re-see it because I hadn't, didn't remember it as well. But it's just so many of these films are so amazing. And I also love how Bergman shows up in some of these films in the beginning, which you forget about, like small little cameos like Hitchcock. So honestly, I, like I said, I did a six hour lecture on him, so I could talk for like six <laughs> hours. <laughs> this is awesome. Him. But awesome. uh, yeah, but there are a lot of entry points depending on what you're interested in. If you if you are just someone off the not someone off the street, but just a casual movie fan that would like to get international cinema, I think the best ones are Seven Seal and Wild Strawberries and Through Glass Darkly. Those are the ones I I definitely recommend to people who just would like to be interested in Bergman. If you have the box set, then great. Then I think if you tackle the religious trilogy and other things, I think are interesting too. But um, there's different ways to get into him, but I don't think there's real any bad points other than, like I said, seeing a film like Cries and Whispers, which I don't think is representative of his career. I only shy away from recommending that because I don't want someone to run for the hills yeah. and think that yeah. this person's not for me. That's great. That's great. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was really fun. And uh, I, uh, I think this is always so helpful for people who, when we're looking at some of these great directors and looking at their vast filmographies, uh, yeah. it's always great to get just a little guidance and uh, a few tips on how to dive into their filmographies. So thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're so welcome. And he definitely has a lot of films. So it's good to yeah. have some sort of guidance to get into them. That's great. Thank you so much for asking me to be on. Oh, this is great. Uh, where can people find you online if they want to follow you and see more of your musings about Bergman? Oh, uh, you can uh, follow me online um, on Twitter. That's where I am a lot most of the time. Uh, my handle is Hollywood Minotaur, but it's uh, Hwood Minotaur. And I, I think I've done, I think, 12 Bergman centric podcast episodes. There's one where I tackled uh, the religious trilogy, his summer film. That's a big theme for him is summer. 
Um, and all of my, if you go to my website, which is beckydeanna.com, there's a section for podcast appearances. And you can see, just if you click on there, you can see all of my podcast appearances. If you really want to, if you see like shame and you want to deep dive on shame or you see his religious trilogy and would really like to hear a deep dive on the religious trilogy, um, those I'm really proud of. I think the episodes that I'm most proud of um, are really from Film Baby Film, um, Shame, mm. we did. And we did a music episode because Bach is, Bergman's obsessed with Bach and music's a big um, part of his whole, all, his filmography too. And so we did a great episode and talked about how music's important to Bergman and all the music films. So it's a cool, it's a cool way too, if you, if you want to go on that link and look at, because we kind of curated films that are like his performance films and films based on humiliation and things like that. So um, if th- that's a good way too, if you want to just thematically go after those thematics and watch those movies and then listen to us talk about them after, I think they're, they're rewarding. Yeah, those are all really, really fun conversations, and uh, I would highly recommend people check those out, and uh, uh, it's a great uh, supplement to your viewing as well, so please check those out. We'll be right back with more Criterion Channel Surfing as Brad McDermott and I discuss films noir that are only available on the Criterion Channel's permanent digital library. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, make sure to check out Good Times, Great Movies, hosted by Doug McCambridge and Jamie Lorello, a podcast about the best, but usually the worst, of 80s cinema. Every other Friday, Doug and Jamie discuss a film from the 80s. Some are films they haven't seen since they were kids and offer a contemporary perspective. Others are films they've never seen before but probably should have. Do they hold up? Are they classics? Or would these films just be better off having been lost to time? Find out more at goodtimesgreatmovies.com. Welcome back to Criterion Channel Surfing. I'm here with Brad McDermott, filmmaker and frequent guest on the Criterion Now and Criterion Reflections podcasts. And we're getting ready to dive into the back catalog of Criterion's permanent streaming digital library. Because the channel releases so much incredible content each month, it's easy to overlook these corners of their permanent library. So here on the podcast, we try to pay special attention to these titles and give you a few films to check out that you may have missed what better way to kick off the summer than to dive into that murky world of shadowy anti-heroes and femme fatales known as film noir if you're following along at home michael hutchins has compiled a list of letterbox streaming only titles you can find a link to that in our show notes now we're going to be stretching the definitions of noir some uh here i always thought of film noir as being you know one thing i don't know about you brad have you always kind of thought of it as one thing yeah i mean when we tend to think of noir we tend to think of well first of all very hollywood and mm-hmm. and it is sort of like it's a very specific way that noirs are filmed and shot all, all across the board so you kind of have that that visual right that 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 uh template that seems to play out over and over and over again despite uh, doesn't matter what what uh what noir you're actually watching 
And so, uh, so we'll be stretching some of those definitions a little bit here. And this is really a, a way for us to talk about some fun, maybe uh, murkier titles. And this will be a, a, a fun conversation. Uh, so, Brad, what is the first film that you are going to be talking about? Um, so on the channel, I wanted to talk about Tokyo Drifter which is uh, Sejon Suzuki's 1966 film that is uh, is film noir, but um, as we had mentioned, sort of pulling away from the typical noir. First of all, this film is in bright color, which is uh, very radical. Uh, noirs are usually in black and white, and they're usually uh, shrouded in shadows. And are usually more sort of simply directed, if I can if I can say that. I don't want it to make it sound like noirs are like bad, badly directed, but but this one is just a, a Technicolor jazz riff, and that's what I like so much about, especially this period of uh, Suzuki's filmmaking, is that he was really pulling apart a lot of these Hollywood archetypes. And, and shaking them all up because they they sort of needed to be dusted out after just sort of repeating repeating sort of the same sort of formula throughout the 40s and 50s. So here you have sort of a plot that doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense, but here you have sequences that are just sort of eye candy. Um, the the final climax inside the the bar has mm-hmm. these like highly highly theatrical lighting and that's sort of a, a, a type of noir is is sort of the the high key lighting the deep dark shadows and and the you know the bright spots but he is not interested in trying to in replicating even the illusion of reality he wants to make it seem uh, as if you are like it's a theatrical experience almost as if you are in a a you know uh, a theater a black box theater and and there's spotlights that shine for no reason on specific characters you know to sort mm-hmm. of like to sort of cheat the idea of what reality is and and what it isn't and it's uh it's in a way that's just um I don't know, exciting, exciting to me. So uh, I love Branded to Kill is sort of his, the, the paired film to go along with Tokyo Drifter, but that's uh, that is in black and white. And what I think is so great about Tokyo Drifter is like it's, you know, is its breakout into not only color, but like massive tech color, <laughs> a lot of color. Yeah. yeah, I think Tokyo Drifter is uh, it's so much fun and it is. It, there's kind of almost a pop sensibility about it yes, all, right? Yes, yes. I love the ways in which, um, I think, you know, for me anyway, all of the films that I'll talk about here and then in, on our follow-up episode are using elements of noir. And uh, they, while they may not be strictly noir, they're, they're using some of those things to explore different different aspects of the the noir genre mm-hmm. and uh i think i think that suzuki takes noir maybe to the extreme oh definitely and uh you know it's it's this kind of kaleidoscopic fragmentation yeah i think uh, tokyo drifter is this just incredible 
incredible film. Yeah, I think this is a great one. And in some ways, he's also like satirizing noir. If noir sort of trades in yeah. uh, on these these ideas that you're seeing a gritty underbelly of society that you would not be exposed to, here he is with his uh, heightened artificiality telling you it's like no that's all fake too and it, and and it, in using yeah yeah in, in height in in exaggerating that artificiality he puts all the the previous noirs sort of in that context where it's you are still being manipulated it's not really a a gritty underbelly that you're seeing it's just again an, an illusion a different kind of illusion but an illusion yeah. sort of nonetheless yeah yeah no, I think it's uh this is a a really great a great film to talk about when we're we're talking about this. Again, you know, I I always love the uh Noir City mm-hmm. film festivals that come through and I love how uh when they start to expand and look at world cinema right. noirs and how each country kind of starts to expand the definition of noir. I love how even different eras have started to redefine noir when we look at neo-noir when we look at different approaches to noir and uh yeah i think this is uh this is great this is really fun uh what are some of the other suzuki films that you really gravitate towards because i do think that suzuki was such an intriguing filmmaker as i mentioned uh branded to kill is uh great is a great companion i haven't seen the other criterions of suzuki but i will if i can move uh, a little bit away from criterion i highly recommend the taisho trilogy that he did through Mm. the span of the 80s and 90s arrow video arrow academy has a release of that and if you uh, if you get that you'll love it you'll love it his here in this period he is he's examining uh, a period in japanese history called the taisho era which was sort of the 1920s but his films again are here are bizarre they're less the less jazzy less almost new wavy and they're more more is sort of like in lynchian territory of strange asides and eerie sequences and and they're domestics. They're they're about um, husbands and wives and and various uh, domestic relationships, and they're filled with images that will just like keep with me until un, until the end mm-hmm. of my days. Really, I cannot recommend them highly enough. Zagunar Weizen is the first one. That is a yes, it is a German word for a Japanese film. Kangaroo Sa, and I think is the second and. Yumenji is the final one, but I, um, I highly recommend the, the Tai Show trilogy. That's great. That's really cool. My first film is uh, Three Cases of Murder. It is a omnibus film from 1955 that was directed by David Eady, George Moore O'Farrell, Windy Toy, with uh, some uncredited direction by Orson Welles, who also stars in one of the segments. And it is a... Well, it's three stories of murder, right? Uh, 
as the <laughs> title would suggest. Uh, this was originally released on Laserdisc by Criterion back in the day, and uh, I'm very glad that it is back in their permanent collection. It would be really fun to get a release of this on disc one day. Again, it's it's one of those films that isn't technically noir, but it borrows a lot of the tropes and a lot of the techniques of noir to tell many of the stories, uh, especially in the center piece, uh, the center story. The, the first of the segments is called The Picture, and it takes place in this museum in which uh, uh, an old uh, docent is... Uh, walking uh, a group of museum guests through and explaining uh, everything to them and uh, sees a a young man sitting there um, admiring a painting and uh, the young man who's admiring the painting eventually ushers the docent into the painting. Oh, wow. So there's kind of some some Poish elements there. Very surreal. Yeah, they're they're the the first and third segment have these these lovely surreal moments, and uh, uh, so it's got some kind of grisly horror moments at the end there. the The centerpiece is uh, called "You Killed Elizabeth," and it is the story of two childhood friends who both uh, fall in love with the same woman, and uh, it's got that great voiceover narration that you get from so many noirs and you've got the shadowy lighting you've got the the streets covered in darkness uh you get the uh the obsessions that you often get in noir with the the female protagonists you get some of the the same plot beats and uh and it's all told in you know a normal whodunit murder mystery it's you know somewhat straightforward but uh they're borrowing so many of the the plot devices and the the cinematic techniques that uh were really uh, perfected in noir and uh, i think they do that really well there and then the final sequence is called uh lord mount drago and this stars orson welles as a uh a member of parliament who uh, ruins another uh member of parliament's career and uh, begins to have dreams in which uh, the he's he's humiliated by this same uh, person whose career he ruined and then when he meets him the next day after each dream it seems that the this member of other member of parliament knows what happened in those dreams and so again this kind of surreal element it feels like wells probably had a hand in the direction of this uh it has some of those those same uh noirish angles and uh exaggerations that you would get in things like the lady from shanghai that was the first thing i thought of <laughs> yeah yeah it has it has a lot of these elements again you see the ways in which noir has influenced some of these later films and i think that's really fascinating in this in this work and uh, so he's haunted by his dreams and he's haunted by this man and uh, he uh, begins to see a therapist and uh begins to believe that the only way to stop being haunted by him is to kill him in his dreams. It's a it's it's a really, you know, these omnibus films are that that were being made at that time are uh, often really fun. I've I've got a soft spot in my heart for them. 
they're often a mixed bag, but uh, it's really fun to see these filmmakers working on these kind of short pieces and to see how they're strung together. And uh, I think this is actually one of the better ones where all three of the pieces work together pretty well. It's nice and dark. It's exactly what you want from a a, a good little bit of murder. <laughs> They're all little a little uh, twisted. They're all just a little ghoulish, and um, they all they all have that that overarching sense of fatalism. Um, that again, I think that uh, that noir really brought. I think it's a it's a very they're very fun. Again, we're stretching the definition, and uh, so for people who are going to be really pedantic about this, I apologize. Uh, but uh, I I thoroughly enjoyed this one, and uh, would highly recommend Three Cases of Murder for anyone who's looking for a good light film to catch on their uh, weekend. Probably. I mean, you've sold it for me. I, I had no idea. I didn't know about this film until you had uh, put it on the list and you just make it sound as if uh, there's so many more elements going on here than what your typical noir would be. And uh, that's kind of really piqued my curiosity. I'm, I'm, I love, I'm really drawn to like surrealism and yeah. that kind of thing. So yeah, it sounds fascinating to me. And Orson Welles. <laughs> yeah. And Orson Welles, you know, you can't, you can't go wrong with Orson Welles, exactly. right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your second film, Brad? Um, so I wanted to sort of take uh, Noir back to its origins. And um, I was kind of looking, I had mentioned uh, earlier about The Big Heat, which is uh, Fritz Lang's Hollywood Noir. So I thought of rewinding time and let's let going back to The Testament of Dr. Mabuse, which I believe is in the German Expressionism bundle currently on the channel. But a lot of what noir became was stemmed from German Expressionism. It, it's sort of like embrace of shadows, uh, high-key lighting that I had mentioned, so deep shadows, highlighting, all of that was sort of a, a mood and atmosphere that was sort of starting out of out of German Expressionism. And then after the Second World War, Hollywood sort of co-opted when a lot of those filmmakers fled Germany to America. And The Testament of Dr. Mubuze is the second film. Yes, it's the second Mubuze film after Mm -hmm. his uh, silent film uh, serial epic, Dr. Mubuze the Gambler, which is also in the channel. But where Testament starts to feel noirish is definitely he's pulling away from these sort of very classical elements that are in Dr. Mubuze the Gambler and we're in sort of like turn of the century style just in general and here this film is much more about um, you know cops with big long overcoats and fedoras and shootouts in warehouses and these sorts of things that you Mm. associate with film noir also sort of the gangster picture there's elements of like underworld uh from joseph von sternberg which would come later and you can see sort of the origins of those those sort of noirs here in dr mabuse it's a um it's a really wildly complex plot there's a lot of pieces that are going on which also kind of like it separates it from M, where Fritz Lang's um, previous films, because if M is sort of more of a social 
film that has sort of noirish elements here this is like pure pulp all of dr mabuse's mm-hmm. stuff is is pure pulp and that's a lot of what um hollywood noirs uh banked on was the the you are watching the nitty-gritty for entertaining they didn't really necessarily have a lot of uh deeper social relevance that they wanted to bring across though some do some do um, I'm sort of gross generalizing here, but like those noir films that Hollywood put out, The Testament of Dr. Mabuse is sort of just here to to s- string a yarn for you. And it also features, uh, d- just like you had mentioned with your recommendation, some pretty wild visual delights as well. There's a, I'll never forget the, the sort of ghost of Dr. Mabuse that yeah. wanders through the sort of final stretch of the film. And that's that is sort of the last, sort of the ending nods of of the more ex- German expressionistic ideas that had that that was sort of the triumph of that genre, right? Metropolis and Doctor Mabuse the Gambler, um, you know, the films of Murnau, that kind of idea, those wildly strange sequences. This is sort of the end of that because mm-hmm. subsequently after Lang left. I actually think Lang left before this film was released, if I I remember. I might not have that right. But he left Germany to go to France briefly and then to eventually go to America and bring all of those sort of German expressionist styles with him, which Hollywood sort of shrunk his imagination and based on on the budgets. Like he couldn't do anything as big and wild as Metropolis anymore. So yeah. what he was doing was the shadowy stuff that sort of that, that end of his filmmaking that was in these these films like Mabuse became the film noirs of, of Hollywood. Um so I yeah, I would definitely recommend to sort of see where all of these sensibilities started and came from the testament of Doctor Mabuse. Yeah, I uh, I think this is a really fantastic film, and I can't recommend this one highly enough. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think this is great. I think that the work that Lang was doing here was pretty spectacular. He kind of created a whole sort of thing out of a whole genre out of nothing. I I yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty pretty special. Uh, I like your point that. You know, as as this is the progenitor of the movement itself, you know, it's it's so interesting to see how how so many of the elements of expressionism fed into noir, and the noir itself feeds into so many other movements right. uh, moving forward. As I was doing some research for this, one of the things that uh, I was I was reading about was the fact that uh, so many film scholars actually consider the the gothic romance in film to be really pretty much the same thing as film noir oh wow i can see that that it's it's they're tied together just uh the the gender reversal Mm -hmm. and um the same fatalism is in them mm -hmm, yeah mm -hmm. and so uh there's some some really interesting uh, the techniques are all there, and uh, these things just keep getting expanded out uh, and used for different purposes. And uh, yeah, when we go back into film history, we see so many things that uh, are still being used today, right? I, I I always like to use the example. I'm a I'm a big David Fincher fan, and he uses inserts a lot. That's that's a big element, and I remember seeing. 
um, Fritz Lang's films, not only Dr. Mabuse's, but even things like, you know, Women in, Woman on the Moon. He's a, He was sort of the big one to start the importance of inserts in, in storytelling. And so when you see films of Fincher's like Gone Girl or even his remake of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, those are very, you know, of seven films that that borrow very heavily from from films like the testament of dr mabuse the the sort of style and also the importance of like the little police procedural details right he was yeah so so to today there's those those techniques are still super important still being used lang was really a trailblazer yeah yeah that's great well, uh, speaking of the, the procedural details, my second film is Yoshitaro Nomura's Stakeout from 1958. And I spoke about another Nomura film a few months ago when I was talking with David Blakesley, and I talked about The Castle of Sand. And uh, this film is about two police officers who are on a stakeout while they're trying to find a murderer. Terrible murder has happened in Tokyo, and they travel across the country to stake out the home of a woman who used to be romantically involved with one of the murderers on the belief that the the murderer may come back there one day. And again, while it isn't uh, strictly noir, it borrows so many of those those tropes and so many of the the stylistic choices that uh, were developed there it reminds me a little bit of the film in the columbia noir where fred mcmurray is uh on the stakeout and becomes obsessed with the object of his stakeout and uh gets involved and there are so many of those those films where you have a police detective who's supposed to be following a uh the femme fatale and ends up getting involved with her and while this film never quite crosses into there the the film has those elements and uses those uh, ideas and so uh yuki who is the the police detective that we follow the most and we get his voice over as he's kind of beginning to question the the very nature of this this stakeout that they're doing and why are they staking this woman out he obsesses about her and begins to believe that uh, she's nothing more than a boring housewife and how could she have ever been involved with a criminal and there's some really great sequences of the police officers trailing her and uh, Nomura for a film that's fairly constrained uses the space really in really well um and uses these great canted angles as he is uh f- having the police officers follow her into through the market uh he makes a great uh use of the space and framing uh, while they're in this one room for so much of the film it's again using the the shadows using darkness and light to to obscure things Uh, and when they finally do capture the the criminal there is that that sense of fatalism that you get with noir and uh, it's a it's it's a really compelling film 
I always really appreciate the ways in which Nomura drops us right into the middle of the action. He doesn't start with the murder and then let us kind of slowly work our way to the stakeout where we are dropped right into the middle of the stakeout. And it's uh, it's a really fun procedural. Hmm. I, I'm new to Nomura. I have not seen... Um, any of his stuff so that I mean that sounds great I, lo- I do love filmmakers that like drop you in the middle of something and sort of expect you to keep up I love doing that I love filmmakers that kind of like trust that you can you can uh, pick up the pieces as you go as he goes along yeah yeah and like so many of well I guess I've, I've only seen a handful of his films now but uh, there is a consistent use of flashback to get us slowly caught up over the course of the film and in this case the officer that whose story we're really following we we get more and more of his backstory and as he is watching this this young woman who who eventually married she she's married into a a, a family uh, she's now the stepmother of three children who who care for her fine uh, but her husband is incredibly stingy and it it doesn't seem like an incredibly happy marriage we uh we get the sense and we we get more of yuki's backstory as as he is wrestling with this question of does he marry for for stability and money or does he marry for love and nomura in all of his films that i've seen so far is keenly aware of Japanese society and is keenly aware of the social conditions that are going on, whether it's class, whether it is, uh, in the case of Castle of Sand, uh, the stigma of disease that can follow someone. And in this case, uh, it is, uh, he's very keenly aware of the the pressures that are placed upon women in Japan at that time. And uh, it's a really compelling little film. Uh, it's an easy watch, and uh, it's, uh, it's good. Great, great. I'll check it out. Definitely. Well, uh, that is four films to catch on the Criterion channel that you may have missed. Tokyo Drifter, directed by Sejun Suzuki. Three Cases of Murder, directed by David Eady, George Moore O'Farrell, and Wendy Toy. The Testament of Dr. Mabuse, directed by Fritz Lang, and Stakeout, directed by Yoshitaro Nomura. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, Brad and I are going to talk about films noir that you may want to check out that are on other streaming services. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, check out Film Baby Film, a podcast hosted by Jonathan James Lobinger. A podcast for people who love movies, or films, if you're being pretentious. Host Jonathan James Lobinger discusses a wide range of film topics with guests who have more interesting perspectives than he does. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm here once again with Brad McDermott. 
we're going to talk about a few films on streaming services other than the Criterion channel that fit our theme. Brad and I already talked about films noir that are currently streaming on the Criterion channel. So we're going to talk about a few other films that fit the theme that are on other streaming services. So maybe before we dive into the films themselves, Brad, what are some of the other services that you use? So I've been using uh, Criterion Channel. I mean, obviously, sort of Netflix or the other ones. Yeah. But a recent one that I acquired was Mubi, um, which I had never mm. used before. And I really love Mubi. They pull out some movies uh, that I never heard before, had no idea about. And they, unlike, like, Criterion has its sort of films and it shares uh, stuff from Milestone, it shares stuff from Kino, but I don't know where movie gets its stuff, and that's also really what's exciting about it. So it can just pull something out of its hat, and you're like, what is this? Where did this come from? And it's by, sometimes you get directors that have been famously hard to see, and they'll just put them up, and you can see them, and it's fantastic. And you're like, I've always heard about this film, but I didn't think any of our you know usual people who release stuff had it, and here movie has it for you to, to, for you to watch, so... So it's been exciting. I really like have been discovering. I've been enjoying discovering them. Yeah, yeah. I uh, used Mubi for my at home film festival, and I mean, I was really, really pleasantly surprised by the the stuff that they had. I think I ended up programming for myself five, six, seven films on the service, mm-hmm. which is you know a third of their programming for the month. Yes. <laughs> and and honestly, I think there was only one of the films that they that that I chose from them that I didn't really care for. Everything else was really really compelling. They're doing some really good work there. That's really current. Yes, right? yes, some really new stuff that you would have never heard of unless it was for them. Yeah. Yeah. To me it's that it's that kind of rush and that excitement that you get when you're going to a film festival and you just kind of take a chance on something and you don't know what it is, but you kind of walk into something blind and are blown away, right? That's the perfect analogy. Absolutely. Well, Brad, why don't we uh, explore some of these uh, film noir or film noir adjacent? Uh, I'll give the disclaimer again that I think, at least for me, I'll be stretching the definition of film noir a little bit. I think I will too. And I think that's I think that's part of the the fun of having your own podcast is that uh, you get to make up the rules and you get to invite your guests to break the rules as well. So, so what's the first film that you have that you're going to talk about? So my first film is actually from a company Film Movement, and it's, it is called That Most Important Thing, Love, and it is by the Polish uh, and sometimes French filmmaker Andrzej Zulowski from 1975. Now, this film stars Romy Schneider, who was very famous in sort of German-Austrian uh, film and, and sometimes French. She's worked with uh, Visconti, and she's famous for her Sissy trilogy, where she plays Elizabeth, Empress of Austria. But here she is in France uh, working with Andrzej Zulowski. So this film 
is his fourth feature film, and it is from the period when he worked in France. If if you've never seen a Zulowski film, they are one of a kind. They really are. He is sort of a manic filmmaker, embracing uh, camera movements and especially his steady cam in crazy, dynamic, and often highly exaggerated ways. So this film kind of touches noir elements, but like all of Zawewski's films, there um, there's an insanity, and his sort of the miracle of all of his films is just how he's able to bring out you know deep human emotions and still maintain this insanity. Because often often mm. wild exaggerations and insanity can eclipse whatever sincerity a filmmaker is trying to bring across. And, you know, the really gifted ones are the ones that are able to sort of have their cake and eat it too. And he's one of them. Romy Schneider plays an actress who is on the sort of tail end of her career. And she's starring in, you know, sexploitation films that are kind of beneath her and she meets a photographer who uh, was a wartime photographer in Vietnam and now is just filming um, like pornography for the mob here in France uh, he meets her on the set of, of this exploitation film and the two of them sort of have a, a love at first sight kind of thing but the problem is she's married to a sort of down and out film fan who might be a closet homosexual and there's issues within their own marriage. So in an effort for him, in an effort to sort of bring her back to prominence in her career, uh, the photographer borrows money from the mob that he's filming pornography for to raise a production of Richard III on stage. Um, and it's being co-starred by a actor who is played by Klaus Kinski, and it's essentially Klaus Kinski sort of playing himself <laughs> as Richard III. So this film is very much in style of film noir. It's about failure. It's about, uh, like you mentioned, fatalism of uh, you know everyone's best intentions not necessarily going as planned as they as they envisioned their lives would would go um but yet as the title maintains the most important thing is love and how love can sometimes be the only satisfying answer that can come out of of all of these failures and i think that's what's so resonant about this film despite the fact that uh, as i mentioned zulowski's crazy so this production of Richard III features like enormous Imperial Japan Shogun outfits in its dress rehearsals. His filming of the underworld of pornography is not, it's not just here's pornography, it's, it's um, these wild, bizarre, surrealistic envisions that kind of recall the origins of film, uh, lots of voyeurism, lots of you know, camera obscura kind of kind of things. And yet still, despite it all, um, it's, it's a very, very resonant um, and moving film. Great performances throughout, especially Romy Schneider, who holds the thing together. And if you're a Klaus Kinski fan, you know, I don't need to sell this to you. You're already there. It is uh, on the Film Movement channel, which I'm not a member, but I did watch it as VOD. And what's, mm. what's interesting to me is, like, I'm wondering... A, did film movement get the the rights to the rest of Zulewski's films? So Zulewski's 
films used to be released through a home video by this company called uh, Mondo Vision, and they released DVDs and then later two Blu-rays of his films, but they haven't released anything since 2017, leading a number of people to wonder if maybe Mondo Vision does not exist anymore, and if the rights of Zuleski's films have now moved over to film movement. If so, that would be great. Uh, His big films that he's known by is Possession, um, starring Isabella Johnny and Sam Neill. That's sort of his most famous one uh, about uh, their in Germany and their crazy love affair and her giving birth to a creature that consumes people. <laughs> um, lots of tentacles and very Lovecraftian. And then his other film is On the Silver Globe that everyone mentions, which is his enormous sci-fi epic that is beyond description and must be seen and it was recently restored so if film movement has the rights to these and they're coming to blu-ray and their streaming service i i that's amazing i just i i i can't believe that more people are going to have um, easy access to his filmography so fingers crossed this is just the beginning Hmm, that's great i haven't had much experience yet with zulowski the only i actually i haven't seen any of his films i did during my at-home film festival see the last film that he wrote but was directed by his son bird talk oh wow which uh i did not like <laughs> at all that was the one that that was the one on movie that that was the only one that i didn't care for oh no <laughs> but it also it also is one of those ones that i'm just not familiar with his work and so it may be one of those things where i need to actually do some di- uh, dive into it it also could just be that his son may not be as good a director as he is yes that's very true that's very true he may not be able to handle kind of the insanity of his father's scripts mm-hmm. and be able to rein that in as well. But there's a lot of really interesting things. There were elements there that I found really compelling that I should like. I just wasn't able to make those connections to to really kind of grab into it. Uh, so this one sounds really fascinating. And uh, uh, I know Possession is on my list to see if I can ever uh, track down a copy of it because it's notoriously hard to find. I think the Blu-ray is still in print with Mondo Vision. I just don't think that the company, because you can still buy their releases, but they aren't seem to be, they haven't seemed to be releasing anything else. So that's what I'm wondering if their their stock is still there, but maybe the production development end is probably not there anymore. This sounds really, really fascinating. And uh, yeah, thanks for this recommendation. Oh, no problem. I'm glad that Film Movement is uh, getting some of this stuff out there. I feel like there are these filmmakers whose catalogs are uh, really inaccessible. And uh, it's always exciting when these boutique labels are able to get their works out there. Yes, most definitely. And Film Movement is, is a top on my list. That's great. That's great. I'm going to go very, take us on a very sharp left turn here. And uh, my first recommendation is F. Gary Gray's Set It Off from 1996. It is currently streaming on HBO Max. And uh, it stars Jada Pinkett, Queen Latifah, Vivica A. Fox, and Kimberly Elise. It is a heist film, and it is about uh, four women who, for various reasons, end up deciding to rob banks. 
it was one of those films that, you know, I graduated from high school in 95. So I was in college around this time. And there were a whole lot of heist films and action films that were coming out. And so I think I wrote it off as just another action film. I was just beginning to get into some better film and some more independent films. And it just didn't really grab my attention. And one of our local art house theaters recently uh, screened it as part of a retrospective on heist films. And basically said, this is a film that we all need to reconsider. And so when I was looking at noirs, I thought, yeah, maybe this is this is one to pay attention to and to look at. And I'm so glad I did. I watched it yesterday, and it's incredibly compelling. It feels really timely and relevant right now as well. It really digs into the, the socioeconomic situation of these four women and the reasons for for why they would begin to consider robbing banks. Uh, it looks at the racism. They each have different reasons. We look at police brutality. There is homophobia. There is just the basic racism. Um, Vivica A. Fox's character works at a bank at the very beginning of the film that is robbed by someone that she happens to live in the same neighborhood as. And uh, she's fired because she happens to know who one of the criminals is. And another young woman, she's a single mother, and because she isn't paid enough for child care, uh, Child Protective Services is going to take the child away. And so there are all of these these situations that push them towards the the life of crime and as we've been talking about when we're talking about noir the the fatalism the drives them into this this life and uh, it's compelling i was really blown away by the film it was queen latifah's first performance and she is oh wow really good and you can see her it was her transition from music and she's electrifying in it. Kimberly Elise, who went on to do a lot of other work as well, she's really good. It's an incredibly compelling film. Uh, F. Gary Gray, who who did Friday, he did uh, Straight Outta Compton. He's a filmmaker who, you know, some of his films really work for me, some of his films don't. You know, there are some great moments in this. There's a, a delightful bit where the, the four women, uh, as they try to reconcile after, you know, in a in a heist movie, there's always differences of opinion on how, how to spend the money and how how low to lie after after you make your first score. They they do a Godfather parody, and uh, it's a it's a delightful little bit. I'm really I was really impressed by this one. Uh, this is very much of the time. It's very '90s movie, mm-hmm. and I feel like it it could not have been made at any other time. And it's great. It's it's a very it's a really solid heist film with those noir overtones, and uh, it's it's exactly what I want from this type of a of a of a heist thriller. And I think that what what elevates it are the the racial and societal issues that it explores. And uh, 
and the gender issues. I think that it, uh, it shows the factors that black women have to face in their life. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really impressive film. I have always wanted to see this film, and it's just one of those films that's been in the back of my brain for a long, long, long time, and I've never gotten around to see. So um, I don't have H. I don't think HBO Max is in Canada, so I'm going to see if I can find it on another service somewhere and definitely check it out. I, I love Friday. I think that's a great film. So I, I am totally with you, I'm kind of hit and miss with his work, but... Friday is a fantastic film. Yeah, this is good stuff. And I believe that it is, if you don't have HBO Max, you're going to be able to catch it on, you know, for a rental somewhere. Yeah, that's what I think I'm going to have to hunt down. Yeah. On iTunes or something. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. What's your second film, Brad? So my second film is, I'm going to the Mubi again. Mubi just recently launched their library which is sort of like the Criterion channel. So mm. instead of movies platform where it's kind of like a ticking clock, right? You have one film a day they release and it's up for 30 days and then it's gone. They've recently released their library, which means not only some of these titles will last longer because you can just go to the library and access them much like the Criterion channel, but some of their more permanent, I think, acquisitions are, are sitting here and ready for you to watch with no ticking clock whatsoever. Um, and that's really exciting because instead of having such a limited range of time, you can sort of peruse and watch it at, at your leisure. And there are some amazing finds here. And I, so my film I'm recommending, it might be a bit of a stretch to call this a film noir, and if you want to <laughs> call me out on it, that's fine, but I kind of, I feel like this film just needs some attention, and it is uh, Sergei Perezhanov's film, uh, Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. Um, so, so for listeners who might know Sergei Perezhanov from his uh, Criterion release, The Color of Pomegranates, I feel that this is sort of is ying to, the ying to that yang where the color of pomegranates um is a very uh is a film made up of a lot of still tableaus where these gorgeous compositions are played out in front of you and there's no camera movement sort of at all shadow of forgotten Am ancestors is the opposite of that where this camera is crazy like roger ebert said you need seatbelts to watch this movie and he's not wrong it's a whirlwind uh, experience. So this film is about is a is sort of a um, another mythology. This time it is from um, Ukraine, but it is a, sort of another kind of folk tale, much in the way *Color of Pomegranates* was about um, Syed Nova. This is sort of another legend folk tale from the Ukraine instead of Armenia, about I this character Ivan and his first wife, which ends um, very tragically, and then his sort of tumultuous relationship with his second wife, who dabbles in uh, sorcery and supernatural. And it's a visual spectacle with lots of just like lush colors and costumes and sort of whirling set pieces regarding the church regarding Eastern European and Ukrainian uh, heritage and culture, and also regarding gender dynamics in the time. And this is sort of like medieval uh, Ukraine. Um, and it sort of has noirish elements 
in how it deals with particularly its women. So mm. the tragic romances and then also sort of the femme, femme fatale kind of romance. So if you I, if you're going to allow me to <laughs> connect those sort of film noirs, oh, totally. go for totally. it. But I mean, you if you want to say this is not a film noir, I that totally buy that too. But I just wanted <laughs> to shed some light on Sergei Paranov. His films have been hard to see with the exception of The Color of Pomegranates. So um, if you are, you know, familiar with him only through the color of pomegranates movie there's a uh, there's four films actually by him on the movie library uh so mm. movie makes a great next step into his film- filmography so um i highly recommend if you are a movie subscriber to uh check out check out his films in the library oh that's great i uh, uh was blown away by color of pomegranates it was one of those films that was just a lovely discovery mm-hmm. due to the Criterion release. It's never looked more beautiful. Yeah. So, and then those those compositions. It's super important because he's he's all about those compositions that they be just as uh, striking and beautiful uh, as possible. Yeah. No, this sounds this sounds like a really really rich uh, film, and uh, this sounds great. And I'm glad that Mubi is in their library providing access to so many of his work that's Mm -hmm. that's great it's it's well worth your time just to scroll through their library catalog and just to see what kind of what kind of discoveries you can find there some amazing stuff that's great that's fantastic well my second film is eve's bayou from 1997 it's directed by cassie lemons and it's also on hbo max i didn't intend to have two hbo max films but there we go (laughs) and this one is an absolutely gorgeous film i actually saw it i think the year it was released i'd heard such great reviews for it Ebert was a big champion of this film. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those ones that, as I was beginning to get into better and better films at that age, again, this is my college years, I was learning more about film. Uh, It was one that I definitely was uh, trying to learn more about. And uh, I remember being really, really drawn to it. And I haven't seen it since it originally came out. So it's been, you know, 20 years. And uh, so in rewatching it, I was absolutely enraptured all over again. This is, uh, again, for some people it will be a bit of a stretch, but in some of the the reading and in some of the the research that I've been doing on noir in the lead up to this episode, the the links between gothic uh, romance and uh, noir that a lot of film scholars make they talk about a lot of the the techniques that are used and this film in particular is essentially a gothic drama that borrows so many of these elements from noir it opens with this great bit of narration in which our young heroine eve as an adult 30 years later says i was 10 years old when i killed my father so we're from the very beginning we already have this kind of this idea of murder this idea of someone who's tormented by guilt we have the fatalism the story is of this this young 
girl who discovers that her father has is a bit of a philanderer and uh, the father is played by Samuel L. Jackson in a really great and really compelling performance and over the course of the film Eve as a 10 year old girl begins to discover that her father has maybe caused damage to her family in some way there are questions of whether he has abused her older sister and she begins to wish for ways to kill him and there are elements of magical realism and vengeful husbands and visions and it's a really really rich and deeply felt film like a lot of the gothic romances uh it becomes about this this young girl's deepening understanding as she is kind of trying to uncover the truth about her her family so in again a lot of the links between gothic romance and the the film noir they talk about how the the young heroine is uh in many cases the hard-boiled detective just the gender is reversed and the young heroine is often trying to uncover some mystery herself uh, that often leads to her awakening and understanding of life's mysteries and it's just uh this this film itself is just it's gorgeous uh cassie lemons is uh, also an actress she was in silence the lambs with jodie foster and this was cassie lemons debut film i think it's Honestly, I think it's a perfect film. I, I think this is this is flawless. Cassie Lemons has unfortunately not been able to direct a whole lot. I think this happens to a lot of black directors, and I think it happens especially to a lot of black female directors. They don't often get the same opportunities that their male counterparts do. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that she's starting to get a few more jobs coming up. But I think that this film, and uh, she did a follow-up, uh, cave, The Caveman's Valentine. I was going to say The Caveman's Valentine. Which is also, I haven't seen it in years. Uh, but neither. I remember being really, really drawn to it. I remember really enjoying it at the time. Yeah, uh, I was just too. looking to see if it's available anywhere. And it's not, it's not streaming anywhere. It's, it's such not, a shame. And it's yeah. a great Samuel L. Jackson performance as well. It's a pretty wild film. Cassie Lemons has such a great eye for the surreal, mm-hmm. you know, as we as we've been talking about in um, so many of the works that we've been discussing this, the, you know, film noir has these surreal elements to it, right, that that were stripped down in the 40s and 50s, but can find their way, have found their way back in. Yeah, that, that's that's true. I didn't even realize, think about that. Where where um, since the 40s and 50s have ended, and I mean we, we talked about that with Suzuki that like all of these other elements yep. are now allowed to return to film noir that maybe haven't mm-hmm. had a had a had a presence there since the early days of German expressionism. Yeah. I think, you know, Cassie Lemons is a is a really, really talented filmmaker that I am just I'm I'm hoping that she gets her due as she gets more and more work. He's by who's great. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping a lot of these, especially female filmmakers, are going to get a resurgence in 
and popularity and just uh, i think criterion has the channel has a lot to do with that yeah just bringing eyeballs back i mean i i remember i watched you know desperately seeking susan i watched orlando these are like super talented filmmakers and that they do they didn't get you know those those directors they didn't get much um much more work after these films and you you watch them now and there you just wonder like where where, did nobody see this talent you know i I don't i don't i mean you know i know what the answer is and it's you know history of it male being a male dominated system and industry but i'm hoping you know that that these streaming services like criterion channel will actually help the careers of of the living filmmakers I am hopeful that, uh, you know, just like the channel is highlighting the films of Cheryl Dunn right now, I am hopeful that the films of Cassie Lemons will be rediscovered and that these works of art are going, you know, we have these works now to, to continue, you know. Uh, it was uh, it was lovely to get to rewatch Eve's Bayou last night before recording today and just be blown away by this film all over again. That's fantastic. I have it on my PVR. I have not seen Eve's Bayou yet. I've seen Caveman's Valentine, but I have not seen Eve's Bayou yet. But it's it's a film that gets mentioned so often. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 well worth watching. It's uh it's a beautiful, beautiful film. And again, you know, so many noir elements are are being used here. Mm-hmm. It's it's great. Well, if you're looking for more films that are borrowing from film noir, that's four more films to check out. That Most Important Thing, Love, directed by Andrzej Zulowski on Film Movement. Set It Off, directed by F. Gary Gray on HBO Max. Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, directed by Sergei Parajanov on Mubi Library. And Eve's Bayou, directed by Cassie Lemons on HBO Max. Brad, thank you for spending the morning with me, or my morning, your kind of mid-afternoon. <laughs> uh, this has been a lot of fun. And I have had a blast. Thank you so much for, for having me. I've always wanted to to be a, be a guest here, and this is fantastic. Well, where can people find you online? Um, so you can find me on the Criterion Now groups and Criterion Considered, your own channel surfing, um, David Blakesley's Reflections. I'm always sort of posting and starting conversations about, you know, new and upcoming releases. Um, you can find me on Instagram. Um, I usually uh, post about my, my artwork on Instagram at Mr. Brad McDee. But so there's some film stuff there as well. Uh, you can find my reviews on my Letterboxd account. I try to uh, post reviews of what I've been watching. Sometimes I'm a little behind, but uh, <laughs> it's all when the mood strikes me. But um, hopefully, you know, give give a few some give a few a read, and uh, hopefully, it sort of might introduce you to some films you you hadn't been aware of before. Um, so my Letterboxd account is also Mr. Brad McDee. Um, and finally, uh, my my YouTube channel, my partner and I have a production company called TikTok Pictures, and we've uh, just recently uploaded a number of our shorts onto our YouTube channel. So we're trying to get enough subscribers to get our own uh, URL. So um, 
So if you like and subscribe um, on our YouTube channel, that's TikTok Pictures, uh, we would be most appreciative. <laughs> so yeah, all those places uh, you can you can find me. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was great. Yes. Thank you uh, so much again, Josh. This has been fantastic. You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website, CinemaCocktail.com. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at CriterionChannelSurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of Criterion Cast a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com and support the work of CriterionCast at Patreon.com slash CriterionCast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener-supported, so please consider donating to the show at Patreon.com slash Josh Hornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show, and for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss in a special Patreon-only bonus episode. We'd like to thank this month's new Patreon supporter, Alice Nelson. Thank you so much for supporting the show, and thanks, as always, to all of our continuing supporters. It really does mean so much. On the next episode of Criterion Channel Surfing, my guest and I will sit down to discuss July's new and expiring titles. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.